0: When the night
1: has come And the land is dark And the
2: moon is the only light we'll see <laughs> No, I will
3: Hello there! You are listening to the Quarter to Three, three I Movie I podcast, podcast for the movie People Cop Car. My name is Tom Chick, and to discuss Cop Car, I've brought along Christian Mokolenski.
2: And uh, this is Unit 17.
3: And with our cop car tagline, we have Kelly Wand.
1: Like my Grandma Irene always said, if you find someone tied up in your trunk, it's usually for a reason.
3: Does Grandma Irene have any backup
1: taglines? Grandma Irene also added, it's like Little Rascals, but by Mamet.
3: I like that one. Did Grandma Irene stop there, or did she keep going with cop car taglines?
1: Uh, she died right after that. Oh, I'm sorry.
3: Oh. You- well, you know what? Can I cover for her? Because I have two. I, I would like to propose, and I don't know that this is allowed, Kelly Wan. I would like to propose two, uh, a tertiary and a quarterary tagline.
1: I see you've been working on your words.
3: I have, yes. I've looked those up. So, <laughs> <Okay>, Kelly, <laughs> how
1: about. Uh, Can I hear the quarteriary one first? I was just always Oh Yeah, okay. okay.
3: That, that one is uh, Let's Be Cops. <laughs>
2: Uh, Did you see that one, that movie?
3: No, I didn't, but I think I will.
2: I, I couldn't f- – I could not stop thinking that every time they said, this is our cop, yeah. I could not stop it's a thinking, prequel. let's be cops, let's be cops.
3: But the, the <laughs> tertiary one, that would have been the last one because I think it's the weakest. Uh, I'm kind of partial to a no country for young boys.
1: <laughs> that sounds very Nambla.
3: Oh, my God. You made it gross. Kelly Wand.
1: It's the same <sighs> acronym. What? I'm in Thank- Europe. It's fine. I'm in a Belgian monastery. Not, I can allow to say that. you okay.
2: okay. We've got Josh Duggar to contend with over here.
3: Oh, my God.
1: Jeez. I don't get that reference.
2: So,
3: well, because you're in a Belgian monastery. You wouldn't have heard the news that Josh Duggar is availing himself of Ashley Madison, Kelly Wand. Who's I Ashley went, Madison? Yeah, see, exactly. Kelly Wand, that's how pure you are. We love you for it. You, <laughs> Kelly Wand, never leave that Belgian monastery. It'll just sully you. Is it- uh Kelly, what do you have for us an IMDb plot synopsis that you could read and then Dingus and I would guess what the movie is?
1: Uh, I don't think you can guess this one. It's just too hard.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, is it the really same good. one? So I guess uh, we, we can't hide this, but you know, we we, we tried to record earlier. We were on <laughs> technical issues. Is it the same one that you you used from then? Because if so, I think I know what it is before you've even said a word. Before I got it after two words, but I think now I will get it after zero
1: before zero words. No, it's a different one.
3: Oh, okay. So, Kelly Wan, go ahead. What is this week's IMDb plot synopsis?
1: The skilled 911 operator Jordan Turner receives it's a M- phone yeah, call. It's
3: the call. Brad Anderson's The Call, the director of uh, Session 9 and that god-awful uh, Trans-Siberian Railroad thing
1: with Woody Harrelson. Uh, and uh, the movie about the aquariums. But the aquariums, what, what? Are they? With Hope Davis.
3: Oh, uh, uh, the, the I Faulkner actually haven't Stark. seen that. His first movie.
1: Um, Rosemary like, Junction this? or something. No last house on the left. Last exit on the left. What oh.
3: is that? Mm, last exit to Brooklyn? No. Last exit to No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Lord, no. not at all. I actually do no. I, I think you're right. I want to say sliding doors. I don't think that's right.
1: That's the. No, that's with Paltrow's yeah. time travel, as I not call it. Not time travel. Sideways travel.
3: But yeah, Travel's. Brad Anderson started with Last Stop Wonderland. Thank you. Oh,
1: uh, Next Stop Wonderland. Oh, oh stop turn, Wonderland. Did right. it You're turn. thinking of Val Kilmer Boogie Nights? And, and a little travel. bit of Last Exit to Brooklyn. Yeah, I was throwing time me. Time travel.
2: Last, e- what of those.
1: The Last Exit to Brooklyn isn't that? Um, oh, never mind. Forget it.
2: Yeah, it's. Porn See, porn yeah, wait. Hold on.
3: I want to know what Dingus thinks. Last Exit to Brooklyn is. Go ahead, Dingus. It's, Carry on.
1: A, it, it's an adults only.
2: Uh, I was Biopic. I was caught somewhere between Jennifer Jason Leigh and yeah, one of the Beastie Boys, cool. and one of what? One of the Beastie Boys. He was, but I think he was in something called Lost Angels. So Last Exit to Brooklyn, I, I think, is uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh. Yeah, uh, Kelly Wan, do you know Last Exit to Brooklyn? Not Udo Kier. What's the
3: name of the novelist that that uh, book is from? Do you know? Udo it sounds Udo Kier. like the kind of the guy. James Clavel. I no, mean, it sounds like the kind of guy you would read. Last Exit to Brooklyn is like a notoriously.
1: Uh, sort of grim, dark. I tried to read Train Spotting and it was just too jargony. Then,
3: like, Last Texas to Brooklyn was like a Hugh Selby Jr. kind of writer,
1: uh, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, I, did, I haven't read Randall Carver either. I don't think how weak I either. am. Are, Randall I Carver? Are you thinking of Raymond Carver? Oh, Randall. Good old <laughs> Randall Carver. <laughs> Randall Carver was on <laughs> Taxi as
3: John. You're also that's probably true. confusing him with Randall Kleiser, the director of Grease.
1: I, I have read Randall Carver of Taxi. <laughs> I haven't read the shortcuts. <laughs>
3: Anyway, Dingus, get us out of here. Dingus, what movie did we see this week?
1: Wait. wait. Down the snake hole, haven't we? The last line of the call IMDb thing is, will she succeeds in her intent? Okay, continue. (laughs) Just wanted to let you know (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Suspenseful. Abs, naturally, Dingus.
2: Uh, This week we saw uh, (laughs) Cop Cars a 2015 American thriller movie about the limits of what Mario Kart can teach you about driving. Mm. It was directed by John Watt and written by him and Christopher D. Ford. It stars oh. Shea Wiggum, uh, who I inaccurately told my son was, uh, was uh, Scoot McNary when my son was asking what we watched this week. I said, oh, it's a movie, it had Scoot McNary in it. And
3: Wait, you he... said this after having seen Cop Car.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, my God. This kid loves Scoot McNary. And asked Scoot me, Scoot
2: and asked me what, did you guys, what did you guys see this week? And I you know, I told him, oh, it's a movie with so-and-so and so-and-so, and it has a guy named Scoot McNary. And he's like, Scoot McNary, that's not a real person. And then a little voice inside my brain said, that's not who was in it, idiot. And that little voice was right because it was Shea Wiggum. Uh, Kevin Bacon is also in it, and James Friedson-Jackson, and Hayes Wellford. Uh, Cop Car is rated R for language. Ugh. Wiener. Violence, and Ooh. drug use.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Drug use.
3: Uh, Cop Car had a very limited theatrical release, so, uh, no point going into the box office. Um... But I think it's one of those things. I don't know what the number is, but I think it was a movie that did well on its per-screen average. So you could say that about it. But more importantly, on Rotten Tomatoes, the percentage of reviews that are positive for Cop Car, 77%. Whoa. Hmm. On Metacritic, the average rating from various reviews is a 64. It's nothing to write home about. Both composite numbers. And that they have more than one digit. Why are you doing the
1: am in the monastery,
3: Kellywan, why don't you give us a cop car synopsis? What would you call such a thing?
1: Uh, do you have your stupid guess from <laughs> usual?
3: I do not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna decline. I'm gonna. Uh, I. I'm gonna uh, retain. I'm gonna. What is it? The right to remain silent. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, I have the right to retain a lawyer to become you're, an attorney. You're taking the fifth. Come on. Well, you don't say you're that to You say you, that to the Senate, like a Senate hearing. <laughs>
1: Can you use it a hortatory word to describe what you're talking about? Like, ooh! <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I have no Let's
3: idea see. what that noises you made, and I yeah. refuse to associate myself with it. I didn't make um, fun of you
1: twice just now in one sentence. Tom does not speak in onomatopoeia. What's what's Tom's attorney say to that response? I mean, questions. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyering is hard. Shit. You're underpaid. Anyway, I believe your guess, Tom, was Cop crocropsis or something.
3: Sure, I'll, I'll cop to that. Uh,
1: <clears throat> think see how cool Tom can be when he just doesn't even try? Mm-hmm. It's the trick. It's a Cop copsis.
3: Rock and roll. So, Kelly Wand, I'd like you to drive it like you stole it. Cop copsis. Ah, oh, see,
1: you
2: forgot to do that. There we go. Okay,
1: I'm doing it. Cop copsis. Some words are all. A movie called Cop Car with Kevin Bacon in it. I lean over to Jackie Gleason and whisper, what did the... Uh, There's a lot of this. I might cut this down. I mean, what... I go, what did the cop car say to the deathbed? Give it a rest. He calls me a soam bitch while Junior holds his hat on his head. In the movie, (laughs) two kids wander through a bumper crop of weeds. The tough one's all. Shazbot. The fat one's all. Uh, this game's a little repetitive. The tough one's all. Cop car. The fat one's all. Dharma initiative. The tough one's all. R-rating. The fat one's all. Uh, oh, snake hole. The tough one's all. You said snake hole? Oh, fuck. We're gonna burn in hell. He raises his fist and goes, Nice! After a while of doing stuff, the fat one's all. Hey, are you sure these are snakes we're trying to plug the hole up with? They feel harder and less alive. You know, like sticks. The tough one's all someday you'll understand. The fat one's all. Uh, you're younger than ma. the tough one's all look at eventually he points. The fat one's all whoa, a park police car. I've never seen one of these before. Hey, I dare you to dare me to do something involving it. Uh the tough one's all Sorry. I wrote this one long out as it's called. Long okay, I dare you to drive it off a cliff and explode in midair for no reason. The fat one's all, all right, but first let's throw rocks at it. I read that's how most cops start out, then they work their way up to bullets. They throw rocks at it, but for some reason don't try to hit the beer bottle on the hood. Finally, they come out into the dirt track meadow and hang out with the car for a bit and play D&D with it. The fat one's all, hey, I dare you to start a cop car cult with me and we'll like erect giant stone blocks around it in non-euclidean patterns while we cape around wearing face paint and hooping and sacrificing outsiders to keep its engine fed with souls the tough ones all all right but first turn around for a bit i want to make out with it the fat ones all man you've been right since the counselor the fat ones all continuing to talk Hey, look, the dumbass sheriff left the window unlocked and the key's on the visor. Law enforcement in our district sure has plummeted since President's Day. The tough one's all. I got two words for you. They get in the cop car. He turns the key. The fat one's all. Hey, should I take that beer bottle off the hood? We don't want it to get drunk. The tough one's all. Nah, I got a better idea. They watch in silence as the car's engine vibrates the hood and eventually knocks the beer bottle into the dirt. The fat one's all. Should I keep wondering what that stuff tastes like? The tough ones all you, my friend, have yet to lose your innocence. But the day is young. The cop car revs irritably. They're all sorry and drive it to some hills with a gate inside them. They trick the gate by breaking it. Meanwhile, before that, K bake parks the car in the clearing, thinks about locking the door, then goes mmm, and goes back to the trunk. It's shut. He's all oh yeah. He goes back to the sun visor, grabs the keys, goes back, unlocks the trunk, opens it, goes back to. You guys still there? <laughs> the sun visor puts the keys back above the sun visor and shuts the door, then locks it. He goes back to the trunk, looks inside at the note that says, Don't forget the two bodies. Love Mildred. He's all, fuck. Drives home, gets the bodies. Comes back to the meadow, pops the trunk, goes back, takes out one of the bodies. Then he sees another note that says, Ended by quicklime." He's all, oh, snake hole. He goes to Osh, buys a bag of limes, goes back to the clearing, parks, puts the keys behind the sun visor, opens the door, locks it, gets out, shuts the door. He's all, ugh. He calls Auto Club, explains the situation to them. They're all, oh, that's not how you make click lime. Click. They send a tow truck out, help him get his car door open. He's all, thanks. They're all, that'll be 60 bucks. He's all, what? I'm the sheriff. Get the fuck out of here. I can shoot both your asses. The driver's all, I'm alone. He drives off. Kevin Bacon smirks as he locks and shuts the door again. He's all, fuck. Calls AAA again, tells him he locks himself out again. When the driver comes, Kevin apologizes for his earlier threats and then repeats them. The driver yawns and leaves. Kevin Bacon's all, uh, Minimum wage nothings? And licks, and licks and locks and slams his door again. He's all, fuck, calls AAA. The dispatcher's all, yeah, driver said to tell you uh, the keys are they're in your pocket. They've been in your pocket all the time, sure. Kevin's all, oh, he hangs up on her, unlocks the door, puts the keys on the visor, drags one of the bodies to a patch of soil in the woods. There's a note on a tree. It says also by a shovel, love Mildred. He's all, oh, calls Osh again. Eventually one body's buried. Kids he back to where he parked, only to find the cop car gone. You guys still there? <laughs> Meanwhile, a fat old woman is almost run off the road by the two kids in the cop car because they're too young to understand the concept of collision.
3: How old do you think Cameron Mannheim is?
1: Yeah. Which one's he, the old woman? Oh, good lord. <laughs> Not a day over 58. All right, I'm sorry, carry on. I just wanted to know we're still here. Cameron Mannheim is someone's name. <laughs> Tom, please. There's no time for fiction right now. This is an opsis. She goes into a diner and stares suspiciously at some fish in an aquarium. Her scowl's all, this is all your fault. The fish are all, ha ha, you're in a vegan restaurant. She blinks first. (laughs) I don't get that shit. Meanwhile, out in the field, the fat kid doubtfully puts on a bulletproof vest while the tough one aims a machine gun at him. The fat one's all, uh, you sure you don't want me to be the first to try the best? Wait. My, are you sure you don't want to be the first to try the vest?
3: Ah, that makes way more sense. Because <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> everything was about to grind to a screeching halt if you didn't address that that uh, complication there.
1: Are you sure you don't want to be the first to try out the vest? Right. Because he's wearing ones. it,
3: and therefore it would make no sense the way you first said it.
1: Yeah. Well, Cameron Manheim's only seven when he shot that scene.
3: No, I think you know who she is from Happiness. I would think that Happiness is something that's a movie that you watch maybe you know like once a month. Which one was she in Happiness? That is her, right, Dingus? In Happiness? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, I know her. I know her more from TV, though. Right, because Dingus loves Gilmore Girls. Uh, she's uh, no. Philip Seymour Hoffman's date in, in Happiness, the one who has the great oh, joy chopping up the. Chopping up someone and have, no, no, not that's that's John Lovitz's date. You're now confusing John Lovitz and Philip Seymour Hoffman.
2: Oh good
3: no, lord! Wait, Philip no, she was in a, a law
2: show like uh, Boston Public or something. It's okay, no Legal. That
3: you watch Gilmore Girls. Nobody's going to judge you for it.
2: No, I happily watched Gilmore Girls. I love Suki very much. Everybody knows that.
1: I don't. I don't even know what that is.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> there are two shows called Boston Public and Boston Legal.
2: Yeah, Boston Public was about schools, Boston Legal was about, uh, law firms. Might have been Allie McBeal that I'm thinking of. And one of those, uh, Cameron Mannheim was a, a, a lawyer. And that's where I got to know her best.
1: Did they ever do a crossover?
2: Yeah.
1: That hmm. one's all. Wait. Which, um... Is it one of the new kids on the block whose last name's Fat One?
2: It's Fatone. Stop it. <laughs> Dingus knows. haha. <laughs> Oops.
3: But he is the Fat One, right? Who's the guy who just left One Direction, Dingus?
1: Uh, that would be Zach Gellifant, I guess. <laughs> See? You get in trouble for playing smart. Wait. <laughs> I was talking to Tom. The Fat One's all. Oh, uh, you sure you don't want to be the first to try out the vest? The other one's all, nah, I trust you. Hey, what's this slider here mean, safety, on or off? The fat one's all, uh, well, since you're safer shooting at someone coming at you, I'm pretty sure we should put that on. The other one's all, all right, now hold still. Are you wearing the vest? I can't see because I'm nearsighted. The fat one's all, yeah, I think so. I can't tell because I'm farsighted. The other one's all, man, if they made a body switch movie about us, I'd switch God damn it, that's one, the whole point. Man, if they made a body switch movie about us, I'd watch it once from far away. The fat one's all totally. Speaking of which, Stinky, maybe we shouldn't do this. We might get in trouble if we put a bullet in the vest. The other one's all, all right, I'll aim for your face, as usual. The fat one's all sweet. He tries to shoot, but the gun doesn't fire. It just goes click, click. The fat one's all. Oh, that second one really hurt. The tough one's all, I didn't shoot anything. I think it's broken. Damn. Is there anything cooler than loaded guns to play with from the backseat? The fat one holds up a roll of yellow police tape and goes jackpot. The fat one's all, oh, there's also this dude bound and gagged in the trunk. The tough one's all, nah. Let's wait on that shit till the tape loses its panache. Is it panache or panache? I can't decide. Hidden panache. Nope. <laughs> in that one. Meanwhile, K-Bait cleans his toilet using plastic bags of Tide. Back at the cop car, the kids get sick of the dude in the trunk pounding and kicking on the lid. Pop it open. So they pop it open. Uh, the held-up guys all. The tied-up guy. <laughs> I did some edits that are also illegible. The tied-up guys all. Kids cut me loose and I'll be your friend. The tough one's all friend, eh? Do you swear? The dude's all now. The fat one's all, are you a bad guy or a good guy? The dude's all, uh, they're all, hang on, we got to confer. They move a few feet away. The fat one's all, can you hear us? The dude's all now. The fat one's all, all right, good. Dude's all, no problem. The fat one's all tough guy. What do you think? The tough one's all, well, he did have an honest snarl. Plus, imprudence hasn't steered us wrong yet. The fat one's all. Both good points, especially whatever the first one was. I say we untie him and give him the guns. That way, if shit goes south, we can say it was in self-defense. The tough one's all. You lost me at snake hole. They untie him, and he promptly sets them in the (laughs) backseat and drives them to a windmill. He makes them tell Kay back on the phone to come arrest them. Then the dude's all, all right, kids, now I'm going to go hide behind that billboard that says Amity Island welcomes you. When k bait comes, you tell him I'm not here and I don't have a gun. Got it? The fat one's all. Wouldn't it be smarter for you to just kill us both right now and then leave? The dude's all, look, do as I sputter. I'm going to come to your house and do you have any pets? The tough one's all. Just a guinea pig and my mom and a snake the dudes all you have a snake why'd you plug up the snake all right anyway do as i say or i'm gonna come to your house some night and i'm gonna make your guinea pig slit my throat while your mom watches <laughs> not making a sound because watching a silent activity is silent <laughs> now wake me up wait <laughs> fuck Wake up when I'm threatening. They fell asleep during it. The tough one's all, sorry, what? By the way, Kevin Bacon just parked behind us in another cop car, and that fat lady just parked behind him. The dude's all, fuck! (laughs) All right. You boys sit tight. God obviously has a purpose for me, since he's seen fit to send you two to let me out of that trunk, that cop car trunk. He opens the cop car door and explodes, (laughs) along with Kevin Bacon the old lady and the other two cars. The fat kid's all, looks like we won, huh? The tough one's all, if you count starving to death in the back seat of a cop car is winning. The fat kid's all, all right, it's a tie. The tough one's all, all right, way I see it, we have three options. Throw the gun at the window a bunch of times. Hit the button to roll it down. Or this grenade, the fat one's all, oh, uh, say grenade, tough one's all. Let's do them all three. The window shatters. The fat one scrambles free, runs towards nothing. Then goes tough guy, goes back to find... The other dude's shirt, soaked with blood. The tough one's all, I think when you crawled out the window, my pancreas. The fat one's all, don't worry, we still got a cop car, and the second best driver of the two of us is still healthy, obesity notwithstanding. The tough one's all, so cold. The fat one's all, hang on. Floors it. He drives the cop car till some words go. Ending brought to you by Meek's Cut-Up. The end.
3: (laughs) Uh, why are you, this isn't Jerry O'Connell and Stand by Me? Why are you calling one of the kids fat kid? Where, where does that come well, from?
1: He looks a little fat
2: early on before
1: he he's wearing a puffy jacket. What's wrong with you? Do you not understand
2: the difference between clothes and skin?
1: Um. Well, the other one's less fat, but that <laughs> seems like too much hassle to say every time. I see the, the, right.
3: The more fat he, one. All right, the fatter one. All right, fair enough, I guess.
1: Um, he's a little portly. Don't cut it. Don't get him off. Too easily. All right. Just you saw what you saw. Wrong. I can't disagree. All right. I see fat in kids everywhere. Sure. But I can't count wrong. That's a little nambla too. All right, Tom. What was I saying?
3: <laughs> uh, Dingus is the father of a, a child the age of these boys. Uh, you go first. What, what do you think of a, a black comedy like this? Uh, he knows how fat children, they can get. About children in peril. Uh,
2: I Generally like uh, this kind of thing, you know. I get freaked out a little bit seeing kids in peril, um, but uh, you know, it it didn't bother me. the The idea of the kids being in peril didn't bother me about this movie.
3: Implying that something
2: else did. I, yeah, I'm not a big fan of this movie. I mean, there's it's funny writing up my uh, my notes about this movie and doing a little bit of writing about it. It's interesting to see. For me, the number of things I really like about it, and yet, overall, it doesn't really work for me, um, which uh, which is weird to see, because there's a lot of things I really did like about it, but it has nothing to do with whether or not the kids are in peril. Okay. Well, what what didn't work for you? Um, I don't buy most of the premise. I don't buy their whole... The way they're driving, I don't buy them stealing the car. I don't buy the way that they deal with driving the car. I don't buy the way it shakes out with uh with uh, all all of the adults converging at that one spot at the end, especially with um uh, Cameron Manheim you know. happening to stumble upon them at the end. Um but mainly it's just the way the kids deal with the car. I I couldn't buy most of what the kids were doing in the car. You know, having a kid that age I just, it didn't work for me. Um, I am interested to hear what you guys have to think. I'm guessing that you guys liked it more than I did, but I am interested to hear both what you guys think about what I just said and what, as far as what you think the time period is when this is sent, when when this is set. Oh, that didn't even occur to me. Like,
3: is there some indication that it's not modern day?
2: Um, the... Style of the cars and the way the kids act. Um,
3: there's cell phones. I mean, kind of yeah, There's, there's a or... flip
2: phone. Well, we have we have Mario Kart mentioned, and we have a, a flip phone, which means that probably um, the earliest this could be said is 1993, I guess. Uh, but it doesn't feel like something that would be set right now because of iPhones and whatnot, and the in the different different ways that. The internet works and whatnot, and, and plus I, d- I just don't believe any of the stuff that Kevin Bacon and the dispatcher Kara Sedgwick are doing with the uh, with switching the radio frequencies and how all that works. I n- I just don't get any of that. Um, but I mean it's it's a it's a serviceable thriller. I like it a lot. I
3: got, I got no sense that there was a different time period here, Dingus. I mean I think okay. what we're
2: looking at is that it was just a, a very remote area,
3: uh, and that it wasn't the sort of place that would have. Um <coughs> uh any uh, the more modern accoutrements you know even you, we briefly see the login screen for the the computer in the police car um
2: which right, and, and he's like, like a, are
3: there any games it. on it uh, yeah. right but I, I i clearly think that I, I don't think uh i don't i don't think that it was like kids looking at a laptop and expecting it to have video games on it clearly places it
2: within the last 10 years uh well i was i think i was i was kind of being kind to it by saying that because um, I think that modern kids are a little more savvy than this. I mean, yes, they're out in the, out in the boondocks in Colorado, out in the plains of Colorado. No, that's where it was on shot, but I don't know. Do we ever see a license plate? Like, I think
3: all the license plates were genericized. I, I don't think it necessarily – and I don't think anyone ever mentions a
2: place. No, it's very clearly there's – a, there's a very clear shot of the Colorado license plate on the sheriff's car. Oh, there is? Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. What, um, uh, is, is that a real county then? Because uh,
2: I thought that was fake as well. But well, I have no idea if that is, but uh, I was just trying to sort of figure it out. And when I was sort of describing the movie to my son, I was I was talking about Colorado because I know the way Colorado – I grew up in Colorado um, for at least a few years of my life. And I know that there's this whole expanse of Colorado that just looks like canvas. I mean, it's just totally flat, and you just don't see anything for miles and miles and miles. Um, so it was it was just difficult for me to imagine these kids – Uh, in 2015 acting this way so I was trying to be generous by thinking well, maybe since Kevin Bacon has a flip phone, we're talking about Mario Kart maybe I can try to nail some sort of time or maybe it's trying to be timeless I don't know
3: Alright, so Kelly Wand uh, uh, Dingus finds finds it too implausible uh, and that was an obstacle for him Uh, what's your take? Was that an obstacle for you? And, and overall, what was your take on this thing?
1: Uh I really loved how it was filmed, and I really loved the acting uh-huh. and I loved that it's all one day and I loved how I loved its sense of build up and like like I wasn't sure where it was gonna go uh-huh. um and uh but I think I'm, I would think it's like the kids i just thought the kids were way un- implausibly dumb, especially after their setup is really cautious and their own little dynamic um like it just seemed. Like they're if they're they're at first scared to even touch the cop car, but then within three hours they're like aiming guns at each other's faces.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And the and the and the more cautious one's the dumber one, except, although, like in that scene at least. Uh, and the ending did seem very contrived. And just like why are these like everyone is sort of letting the kids live and be in the way, and it seemed a little surprised. Like, I guess I wanted the kids to need to use their wits more, even though maybe I guess it wasn't that kind of a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I'm with Thingus, actually. But I did love how it was shot and it felt like a no-country thing. The Timeless thing, I think, is true. Um,
3: If anything, it was, I think, going for for that. Like, I don't think it was a period piece. I think they were just trying to I presume the director was just trying to fix it in a specific... Because there were no cultural references. Well, I mean, besides Mario Kart. Like, they're not talking about you know, what movies they watch or whether or not they right. play Magic the Gathering or anything like that. But like that or,
1: wasn't something that was gnawing at me in a right, way.
3: Right, And so, I, I think that was, yeah, that that just gets towards, not necessarily being timeless, but some movies will make pop references, others will assiduously avoid them, and I think this is the latter.
1: Uh, yeah. I was still with it, though, like even after the shootout and they're throwing the gun at the at the window and it's just so drawn out and it's just paced like you really have no idea what's going to happen at that point. And it's almost, it's like two minutes till the end of the movie. And I thought that's actually really hard to pull off. So I thought that was cool.
3: One of the, yeah, like I, I really liked how the stakes escalated, uh, how it goes from being innocent to really dark and how it it earns that.
1: Uh, Like we're true grit. Like the, like she gets the kill finally, but then she falls into literally a snake hole and then things keep going and change.
3: Um, the, the, what, what Dingus is characterizing as implausible, which is certainly one way to look at it, I saw as, uh, just kid logic. Um, and I, I loved how the, the movie introduces and progresses according to this kid logic. And I have no idea whether it's realistic. You know, I'm not the father of a 10 year old boy, and I, in a way, couldn't care less because I, I think it's internally consistent. You know, these kids, uh, and we, this is early on, their perspective, their movie, they're setting the stage, Right. and they're, they're saying things like that they're 50 miles from town. Um, <laughs> and, and he's saying, you know, don't get rust poisoning. I mean, you know, the whole snake hole thing. I'm going to leave my stick in there so the snakes can't escape. I mean, this is kids. If you want to call them yeah. – if you want to say it's implausible or they're dumb or whatever, that's fine. But I just saw it as their logic is driving the movie and, and why they do what they do. This idea – that one of them thinks his fingerprint they're just going to leave you know they think by the way when they see the cop car they think it's there looking for them they're like how right. do no we've only been gone for a little while they think that that cop car is there to get them uh, which makes no sense uh but you know that's that's kid logic cuz everything you know on the center of this universe I've run away obviously my my grandmother or my stepdad or ever has called the cops and they're out in force looking for us. You know, yeah. we're on the lam. And and there's this very kind of Tom Sawyer quality to it early on.
1: No, um, Yeah, I think it's when the kid put on the vest and it's like he was kind of the bigger pussy of the two. So it seemed out of character partly. Well,
3: but one of the things that I, I want to talk about is when does it uh, when does it turn like when does it start to become. Less of this kind of innocent romp and these these two goofy kids clearly. Yeah, Kevin Bacon. And when does it become more of a black? And that's the thing, because uh, I still think it's hilarious when Kevin Bacon arrives. Like, as a villain, he is so, I will say it, adorably hapless.
0: Yeah.
3: And uh, in, in this, and I yeah. I love that the movie takes time to let us watch that and let it breathe. You know, I love how long it takes him to do that shoelace trick to open the back of the the. Yeah,
1: that part's great.
3: Um, yeah. So I don't I don't think it necessarily does turn with introducing him.
1: Um, and, I have a know,
3: question that that scene where they're they're going to shoot the gun. I mean that suddenly is you know that 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 the, the movie is a series of these escalating moments, right. and I don't know if there is a single one. I don't know if it turned at a certain point for you guys.
1: So something I was thinking is, since the movie's called Cop Car, is it possible, like I was, I kind of did view it maybe as once they get the cop car, they sort of become drunk with power. And so they're, like that makes them crazy courageous with, go- like now they think everything's sort of going their way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so when things escalate, like you say, like their courage escalates with it. Like they're crazy foolish, like their kid logic. Well, I'm not sure that... The cop car is the source of that, right? But I'm not sure the
3: escalation necessarily is the kids per se. Like they're like, like when does it become clear that uh, that, that that this isn't well? well and I asked this
1: is Pippi. You mean what is Pippi? Well, it's just like she's a kid's
3: Pippi Longstocking. But, yeah. Oh my God, Kelly, one. Were you born in the '50s? <laughs> Pippi Long. No,
1: Pippi rules. What are you talking about? She's great. Oh, I think she's Belgian too.
3: Well, I, I was thinking like uh, for for me when it's when it stops goofing around, you know, it's it's bad enough that a guy is disposing of bodies, but for me, it's it's realizing that Kevin Bacon is willing to shoot that motorcycle cop. Um, like that's a moment when I watch it. and I've seen this a couple times where I'm like, oh, now now we're no longer playing around. Now we see this guy is no longer playing around. We understand the stakes of what he's willing to do. Right. Um he's not quite so adorably hapless anymore. Um and I think it's after then that we get stuff like them playing with the uh with the the the, the bulletproof vest and the automatic rifle. Uh So, right. but I don't know that there is a clear turning point because like you said Kelly Wand, I mean it's how it progresses. This thing is just escalating. Yeah.
2: Um well, I, you know, I would actually disagree, I think. Huh? Go ahead. Yeah. I think there's a very clear turning point for me. Um, because i love the way the movie opens up i love that whole sequence where they're walking across the field yeah. um you know and you know the opening i think the first word is wiener, mm-hmm. and and they're doing that sort of uh, dare dare you say a word that i'm going to say thing that they do and i had a friend like that and i was that uh you know i was basically that that fat kid in the in the and the big jacket who was nervous about being out and would have been the one to plan to bring something along on their running away, but not be able to plan properly and only bring a Slim Jim along. Um, and so I love that opening sequence when they go through the barbed wire uh, and they, the different ways they do it, and then you see him and they can do it later on in a totally different way the way an adult would do it, um, and the way they go after that snake hole, that doesn't make any sense to me later on when you find out One of the most of snake, Um, but I I like all of that. I think that all for me, uh, as we go and we find the cop car, they throw the rock, they they talk about that moment with the fingerprints. I loved all of that because for me, up until that moment. Um, well not to that moment but the moment I'm going to talk about this is the quality of a fantasy it's a, it's, a, it's like a make-believe game that two 10 year old kids are out and they're playing and they're constructing and they're talking about, we're running away we're the heroes of this thing that we're doing and I, I loved all of that I think the moment that it turns is in the moment where it doesn't do and this is one of the things, again there's so many things I love about this movie um, where the movie does not say 30 minutes earlier it just shows you they're driving across yeah. the plains and then all of a sudden we see the car coming back down into the gully and when that we realize when Kevin Bacon gets out drinks the beer and puts it on the hood oh we've jumped back in time um that's when i think the movie turns it's not any sort of brutality or anything it's just oh we're not going to be in these kids' world.
3: Well, that's certainly a turning point, Angus. Yeah, but but whereas yeah, that's, oh, that's oh, I see turning
2: it's, point for me. That's when I realized, like the, an adult perspective, like we're right. not just this is right, not right. this is not like Stand by Me, where it's like four kids on an adventure and they're going to have that adventure and then they're going to have we're going to see some things from you know the Kiefer Sutherland group and whatever. Right. Uh, this is this is not the kind of thing that I thought I was getting into, and that's not a problem. For me at all but, that, that, but it does of. it does turn for me at that point
3: i i meant more though the tone as far as like being oh, right. like as far as being going from this mark twain just uh s- sort of the life of a child to this coen brothers dark Uh-oh. movie where one of them is going to die i mean and I, I can't wait to talk about the ending uh but that kid dies i mean i i, I oh, don't know yeah, yeah i agree any. uh so and it, where it becomes a movie where one of these kids is going to die like at what point for me, and I don't, and I don't think there is any one point. Uh, and I think that's one of the really skillful bits of direction is how John Watts does slowly start layering on the comedy over what Dingus you describes as it. yeah. kind of a fantasy. Um, is that old you, you lady? Go ahead.
1: When when they run that old lady off the road. Okay,
3: Cameron she Mannheim, She's not talking
1: be, about her
2: as an old lady. It's Cameron Mannheim. Well, Where is she? She's 30, older than them. Thirty-five. What?
1: Maybe. I don't know.
2: Jesus. But, wait, but isn't wait. she
1: supposed to be older? Isn't she playing older?
2: First of all, she's not an old lady. Second of all, she's in a Chinese restaurant, and not a diner.
3: Stop it. Oh. But I don't well, – well, go ahead, Kelly Wand. We know who you're talking about. We just want to stand up because I love her. I mean I, I, think yeah. I, don't, I, I think she was like widely lauded on that Boston show you're talking about. I, I think her her scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman in Happiness is is some amazing work. So Kelly Wand, be nicer to Cameron Manheim. That's my opinion okay. to you.
1: The enchanting and lovely and very young. Exactly. Right. Yes. yes. Who steals the movie.
3: (laughs) All right. I wanted you've gone too far. Now I feel.
1: Oh, okay. I'm just trying to be. Um, no, when they first drive her off the road, it's kind of like a, a Smokey smoking the bandit moment. Like, Oh, (laughs) you know what? You're kind
3: of right. It is, but well,
1: no, but then that's what I'm saying. It's like, and then it, but it stays with her. And it's like, it's instead of it just being a double take, like, Oh, I'll need a movie. It's like, you know, suddenly you're watching... Like, her reaction is very sincere, right. seeming. And you go, oh, wait, it's not a wacky...
3: Well, and another thing, of too, of. is how it just... And again, I gonna... love when movies do this. We, we've ta- I've talked before, and I think a lot of times I say this, and people are like, what the hell is Tom talking about? I've talked before about when a director cuts away from an actor's reaction too soon. Right. Um, and John Watts in Cop Car, he knows... How to just keep the, the camera on an actor for a while. And he even does it with a peripheral character like Cameron Mannheim. Um but but
2: uh I, 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 I have to agree with you, Tom, on that because I think that what she brings to this little role, and I wonder if there's other stuff that they cut out, but what I think she brings to it is is there's so many layers in this little thing that she does, and this it might be that sort of feeling Almost for me, a little bit of the the Kathy Bates and Misery feeling like um, nobody in this town trusts me. Right, right. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. I don't know what's going on with her, but there's so much indecision when she's talking to the waiter and when she approaches the cops. And then when she finally finds the, the kids and she yells at them to get out of the car. I mean, there's that vindication. I mean, I love the way she plays this. I don't know how... It worked out that she got into this, but I'm so glad she did.
3: Because that scene, if if if, you, if a director is 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 thinking about that scene to just convey information, you know, a a third party sees the kids in the cop car and tells the cops, you know, that's the narrative purpose here mm-hmm. is that that the police have to be told, and Kevin Bacon then has to find out through the dispatcher that there are little kids in the car, and she served her purpose there. But John Watts knows enough to. To to introduce her as a little character, I mean he's going to bring her back and get her shot in the head, and I I completely understand someone believing that that's too contrived. Uh, But to his credit, though, he doesn't cut away after she sees them drive by. You know, She does the double take in the mirror, and he holds on her for a little bit. Um, And my favorite example of this, by the way – so Dingus, I was going to make fun of you for – because I know we all hate the – you know, three weeks earlier, title card. Uh, <laughs> and, and actually, you hate it more than everyone, Dingus. It drives you into a blind rage. Yeah, you will sure. stand up and scream at the, the screen, and then you Not will stalk nice. out and demand your money back from the theater manager. I've seen you do that several times when that guy makes money. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> there's no title card here, but, uh, and, and at first I was thinking, oh, he just shot it in order. And then later thought it would be interesting to do that. But I don't think that's the case because clearly that beer bottle is used as a clue.
0: Yeah. Like
3: we're keying into these little bits of information. Uh, It was made to be revealed that way. You know, that's why that beer bottle exists as it does, so that we can then see the timing Mm -hmm. set up instead of just a dopey title card. Right. Uh, And that was super skillfully done. But so to my point about directors who know to hold on actors. for me, the tension—you see Kevin Bacon drive up, you know, you know he's up to no good. You see him then take the bodies out, uh, or take one of the bodies out. Uh, the tension in that scene—what's uh, driving me, and I think the audience isn't—why did he murder these guys? What is his deal? Uh, right. You know, what's going to happen? The tension is. I can't wait to see his face when he realizes the car is gone. <laughs> and boy, Kevin Bacon does not disappoint.
0: No. Oh, um, no, he does
3: not. You are waiting for that moment. like, And I loved what he did and how John Watts just kept the camera in there uh, and just let him run through several stages. And, you know, he could have just cut to the planning stage where he calls the dispatcher, but just that, that moment of confusion and what is happening. Uh, and he sets it up, too, with this idea that. Again, Kevin Bacon being adorably hapless, uh, the scene where he has to – where he sees the shoe and has to go back and get the shoe, and he's right. just so exasperated yeah. at that point. He's having a crappy day already.
2: Uh, well, I have two questions for you. Yes. Um, because I, that whole sequence fills me with such joy. I mean I, I love to hear you uh, – I, I loved hearing you describe that. Um, what did you think about that run up the hill?
3: Where he's gonna like where he realizes where am I even going? Like like Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. I mean yeah. that, that that reminds me of uh uh I, guess I know you are are very fond of Bill Murray's run in Rushmore, yeah. where he runs away from that scene, you know, an actor running into the background rather than off the frame. Uh there's another beautiful one of those that Wes Anderson does in um Oh shoot, what's the hotel movie? Ted Gummet? Not bad. Budapest, Budapest. yeah, great Budapest Hotel. There's a... Uh, uh, Ray Fiennes does an amazing one of those, uh, but just as a little physical bit of comedy and not ha ha slapstick comedy. But uh, I loved that run away from the camera up that little hill and then coming back.
2: Yeah, it was adorable. I presume you liked it as well, right, Dingus? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I really loved it because uh, what my brain tries to do is is feel in the motivation. Like, what is he going to check to make sure? <laughs> what, what's he going to do? But I think it's just, you know, a, I have to do something. Right, right. Yeah. The the other thing is that whistle. What's up with that whistle?
3: That I wondered about. I think it's just to see if there's anyone around. Oh. Okay. Um, yeah. Just a sort of a, a, a hello, like. Uh, but I don't know the the rural Colorado version. I don't. know. Uh, it was weird. Uh, like it, it's like he's calling a dog or someone.
2: Um, We're calling for his uh, his cohorts. Like like right, okay, right, I've, right. Got, I've got a couple of people. I've pulled up here. Now I'm calling them to come over and help me, but nobody ever shows up. It's just him doing that whistle, which is so weird, but it's so wonderful.
1: To, to clear the area, like, oh, cop's whistling. It means more on the way. we got to get out of here.
2: Yeah, it was definitely odd. Uh, an odd touch. But I loved but that, def- and I immediately wanted to ask you guys what you thought about it. That's one of those one of the things I love about <laughs> this kind of movie is, is you know, stacking up questions that I want to ask you guys about, because I'm not quite sure how they stack up. Um, and I know that you guys have seen it and you will have thought it through, too. But that that moment where he steps out of the car, and and we're already a little bit confused because of the layering of time, and I love exactly, you put it really well, Tom, the, the, the way that that beer bottle works out and the way that, uh, that John Watts works that whole sequence, um, it made me so happy that he didn't put a title card in there. But I just wondered what that whistle was.
1: It's like the bottle had writing on it that told you what time it was. Basically, yeah. Uh,
3: let's um, – so, Kelly Wan, you, you mentioned the ending. Or no, Dingus, you, no. Which one of you didn't like the ending? Kelly Wan, you called it a, a mixed cutoff ending, but which one of you was critical of the ending?
1: Uh, I think that was me. Okay. Kelly Wan, uh,
3: so what? what's your – so just <laughs> what did you guys think stuff. of the ending? Let's talk about the ending. Um. <clears throat>
1: um, I think I've reconciled myself to ambiguous endings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always – and the reason is – the reason why I reconcile myself is when I talk to you, kind of just like what Dingus said, it's like you'll always go, no, Kelly, this is why it, what it meant. And then you'll basically just resolve the ambiguity. So I know I don't – they don't distract me as much as, I'll just get to Tom. He'll tell me if the kid died. Oh, he did? Okay, cool. Done.
3: All right. Well, maybe I don't have that for this movie, or maybe I do. But uh, Dingus, what, what did you think of it? Because it, it's an odd <laughs> ending. Late. I mean, it's definitely yeah. – uh, it, it calls attention to itself, certainly.
1: Um, and it's paced weird, like the rest yep, of the movie. Yep. Yeah. Yep
3: uh dingus so uh may, dingus you might have been over the movie at this point but how how did the indian work or not work for you what were your thoughts of how john watts decides to play us out of this uh and, and actually before we do that would you guys agree that this is a black comedy
2: uh shit i hate no. labels no i don't think it's a black comedy.
3: ah okay okay because i you know uh, you hate what kelly wand label Oh, you said you hate labels i'm okay with labels like i don't uh I, I don't mean to reduce it by, or I'm not meaning to uh, to, to minimize what it, it's, it's doing, or to make it no, no But, it's but I clearly it. think it's a black comedy. I mean, I, I think this is uh, uh, something like this is the sort of movie that I I wonder about this. Did movies like this exist before the Coen Brothers made Blood Simple? Because I kind of wonder if if they didn't. Um, they were rare. Well, the, this combination well, of violence and comedy, or, you know, Simple no Jimbo. You know, of simple people dying these horrible deaths due to misunderstandings, for
2: instance. Um, like, did the Coen brothers kind of invent
3: that with Blood Simple? I mean, I no, feel simple.
0: no.
2: I think a lot of film noir has those qualities. Those no, no, but film the noir Coen brothers invented black comic. No,
3: no, no. But the thing is, film noir was never comedic. Like, film noir never mm. had. What, what, I mean, and again, I maybe this is crazy, but I, I don't think of the Coen brothers. Blood Simple has very definite noir elements, but as far as tone. Um, I don't know. I mean, film noir was mostly earnest. Uh,
2: Okay. The Uh, earnest movies? I don't think the Coen brothers invented black comedy.
3: No, no, I'm not saying they invented black comedy. I'm talking about this tone, this combination of violence and comedy, where, where simple people, due to some easily averted misunderstanding, come to these horrible, bloody fates, uh... Is not the general? Kind you know, there's of like a reason that? that people describe movies as, as being like a Coen Brothers movie, and that's because right. they have their right. own tone. And I'm just wondering what's the precedent for that?
2: Yeah, well, that's I a good question. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Trying to but think, way, ones that's,
3: ones a, that's a larger days. question because I clearly think this movie is in that tradition, and that's why I would call this a black comedy. The same way I would call something like Blood Simple a black comedy.
1: I think there are a lot of movies that I tried to do it, but the
3: Coen
1: Brothers. Right, right.
2: I agree. Yep. yep. Well, if, if this is supposed to be a black comedy, I don't. T- I don't think it succeeds as such, because okay? it doesn't. It doesn't read like that to me as all, at all.
3: I mean, I guess it, part, yeah, like what, I guess I mean, it would depend too. Like, what do you think is the success? Like, what is what does it mean to succeed as a black comedy? Uh, and I, I don't really have the answer to that. Um, but right. I think well, it is
1: a black comedy. I think I'm with Tom. I just think the semantics of parsing, like what something is tends to i don't know because every movie is its own thing kind of i don't know and the cohen's like movies like this if you say it's a black comedy like the cohen brothers movie then it kind of diminishes it like it's a cohen brothers pastiche right right well i i think here's an example this
3: moment i think dingus kind of uh typifies what i mean when i say it's a black comedy uh uh try to try to aim for the vest you know that is funny it's a joke And it's also a serious, there's a serious implication of of a child dying of a terrible thing. You know, when he is saying, I think it's out of bullets, and he's holding it up to his face to look into the the barrel of the the automatic rifle. That's funny, but it's also very not funny. Um, And everything's showing like
1: this is is all really happening.
3: And and I think that that moment typifies the tone of this movie. And part of what I admire about it is it's not clear from the beginning it's going to be like that. Like the movie sort of builds into this, these escalating stakes, um, and it sees
2: it through by killing one of the children. Um, so well, I, I, mean, I think you always know that that's that's in danger, um, and that's I, and maybe that might be uh, sort of um, online with what you were asking about at the asking me about at the beginning of this. Is that it was difficult for me to watch them goofing around with the gun no matter what they were doing, whether they're throwing against the window of the police car or looking down the barrel of the gun. Because, you know, having grown up in Colorado and having had, you know, Hunter safety and gone through all that training, it's hard for me to believe that these kids don't know how to deal with firearms to that extent and don't even know. Even if, you know, which gun is, works and which gun doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I it just, they just that. seem like such idiots. Um, so it's hard for me to look at that as funny or as even black comedy because it, all I mm-hmm. think of is a sense of danger of these kids are, are throwing a gun against a window and they're, one of them is going to get killed. And, and one of the, I think the strong points of this movie is that neither one of them is safe. I and mean, we don't have the sense that, like, you know, a pet in a movie is safe. Neither one of them is safe. I know that one of I I have the feeling that either one of them could be killed or both of them.
3: Yeah, I kinda it took a while before I started to I mean that that was that was like this sense of increasing dread. Is early uh, on I really did think it was going to be a kind of a standby made thing where, you know, everybody's um, gonna be fine. Yes, Kelly Wand.
1: Here's the thing. Um I'm gonna defend the vest thing even, which is mm-hmm. it's a Dickens uh formula where it's like the one you think is gonna die or get away doesn't and so it's like the fat one cameron um he's the one who's mostly imperiled like the vest thing so it's setting up like it's sort of foreshadowing that the other kid's gonna be the one who gets it because he doesn't like have as many near misses and therefore he's kind of the more like it's sort of in film language. It's telling you that the other kid's doomed when the fat kid puts on the vest and doesn't get shot.
3: Yeah, I didn't get that. I mean, I I, I don't I I pride myself for not picking up on things quickly. So I didn't uh, I did not get that at that. Point. Oh,
1: I didn't get it when I watched it. But now I'm thinking about it. Right. Right. You know, um, what were you going to say?
3: Well, well let's, so then let's talk about the ending. And, and and Kelly, ultimately, I'm with you, Kelly. I mean, labels. Yeah, you can only go so far with labels. Uh Me calling this a black comedy, that's totally fine if you would put it in a different category, but I really did. It reminded me in a good way of a Coen Brothers movie, and I see so many young directors trying to do Coen Brothers and and just not really pulling it off very well. Um, So the reason I do want to call this a black comedy is because I I feel it explains for me why the implausibilities that Dingus talks about didn't bother me, Um, and I do think it's kind of clever how we do find out that neither of these boys necessarily has a, a, a an older man in his life. Uh, when they're explaining their home right. situations, right, there's right. the guy who talks about his stepdad, Stepfather, Chris. Yeah. yeah, and you don't know how long he's been around, but otherwise the kid is being raised by his grandmother, and we don't know why. Um, but at that point, it's kind of like, oh, maybe that's why these kids in this rural place aren't gun savvy. Yeah. And I, don't, I you know, again, the implaus- implausibility or, or – uh, that that really wasn't an issue for me, uh, but I can completely understand why it would be for for someone else. But for me, looking at it as a as a black comedy, I th- I think that that it was also kind of uh there's there's this grotesqueness and this exaggeration to it that I was okay with. Um,
1: with yeah, like that, it and that, it just it was there were a, it seemed there was a lot of realism too in in a lot of it, a lot of shots, and so maybe it was just that juxtaposition that just felt. I don't know. It's like only the Coen seem to get away with that.
3: Um, I mean, we could do a three by three of like worst imitations of Coen Brothers movies, and I or best know. ones. <laughs> well, they would probably be Coen Brother movies. That's a good point. <laughs> um, so, okay, so let, let's talk about the ending, though, because I do. Uh, so Kelly Wand uh, didn't work for you. You're expecting me to somehow redeem it. I don't know if I can. You already have. Oh, how?
1: Because you told me what happens.
3: That's all I oh, need to know. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I, I, and again, we don't know what happens, but I, I'm pretty clear that if the director wanted us to believe that the other kid had survived, he would have done Shown some – hospital. He, right. It would have been shot a different way. Like the movie would have yeah. ended a different way if he wanted us to believe that the other kid was going to survive. Like he had the opportunity. He could have taken the opportunity to make it clear that the other kid was going to survive. Based right. on the information that we have um, when the movie ends – I think he's perfectly okay with us assuming that one of the kids is going to die.
1: Is it? Do they die at the moment the movie ends, and it's like a little Sopranos kind of thing? Uh,
3: don't get me started on that Sopranos ending.
1: What? It's which, great. You know,
3: which I love. Which I love. But I think people say, "Oh, no, it's it's uh, it's shorthand for somebody bursts in and, and kills Tony Soprano." I, I disagree with all that. But uh, uh, but so anyway, I want to get Dingus ding is how did you feel about the ending? Were you, were you over it by this point? Did you did you care? Uh, did you like it? Do you not like it? We have a good friend who believes that all movies should ex- should end ten minutes sooner than they do than they do. Um, yeah. thing is did you feel? Including like- short films? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe. Mm. Yeah, that would be that would be a tough criticism to apply to a nine minute movie.
1: I believe all comic books should end with the cover. Dingus,
2: what were we gonna say? I was gonna say I'd be fine with the movie ending when, um, the fat kid, as Kelly puts him. Wait, Dingus, he, so you're
3: good at this. What are their names? Do you remember their names?
2: Hey, uh, that's top of my head. No. Okay. Right. Um, when when he gets in the car to drive it, you know, and he realizes, I mean that that moment where. Um, where he walks away. I mean, that's such a great moment where he, where, where, I'm um, kind of, darn it. Uh, what are you trying to remember? I can help you. I'm trying to remember the character names. It's like, yeah, yeah, normally you're
3: our, oh, what is it? You're our character name uh, expert, so it's, it falls yeah. to you.
2: All right, See one you. of them is named Travis, and the other one is named.
3: Oh, Travis. Travis. oh no, Travis, you're right. It's a tough one. So, Dingus, you're halfway there. That's oh. the other kid's name?
2: I can't remember. Okay. Um, Butthead. Uh, but I think Travis is the tough kid. You're right. But when the other kid, um, emerges from the car and runs off Uh and runs down the street to get away, and then you realize obviously that the other kid, uh, that, uh, that the tough kid has shot himself, um, and he's not emerging from the car for that reason. And then the other kid, uh, uh the uh, the wimpier one uh comes back to the car and realizes that and then he gets in the driver's seat and starts driving I, I mean i'm fine there i don't need kevin bacon to somehow magically crawl back to his truck get in
3: oh i didn't even being shot back. in
2: the chest right right, right 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 and then drive after them and do oh and then the sun has gone down and now we're suddenly at nighttime and then to do this whole uh scary truck ramming you from behind when by the way you don't know how to drive a car and I, as a driver myself if some truck was ramming into the back of my car over and over again at high speed I don't know that I could keep it on the road so all that stuff sort of it wasn't that I don't care and I I don't want you to think I don't care because that's not the way I felt about the end of this movie I I felt that 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 kid was dying and that was a real thing and then the the dispatcher coming back online uh no matter how i felt about the rest of that radio stuff being ridiculous um i i found that really touching and really uh but by that time i i felt like i don't buy anything that's going on in the movie and that's a different thing than not caring um i just didn't buy what was going on i didn't buy that that kid could keep the car on the road without headlights on and then I, I liked that he turned the, the siren lights on when he had played with them earlier so that that at least had been uh, laid down for us that he could do that. But that he can do that with driving and not figure out how to turn the headlights on and all that ridiculous stuff about, uh, what's, oh, is that the shifter? I mean, I just don't buy any of the car stuff. So, And that's a real problem with me since I don't buy any of the car stuff. That that end – that whole ending where he's driving down that road after he swerves about Chekhov's cow uh, is it's just ridiculous to me. It's just ridiculous, and it's not black comedy. To me, there's a difference between black comedy and ridiculous. That whole swerving about well, no, black,
3: black cow. Like, I mean it's the black part of the black comedy at the end. I mean there's nothing funny about the ending. At that point, we have fully progressed from uh, our fingerprints are on the rock to right, – right. The, the danger side of the kid looking down the barrel of the gun. Right? right. And the black comedy I'm talking about is the overall tone, the progression. The ending, right. I don't think is black comedy at all.
2: Well, um, it's, it's, I guess. Uh because we brought up Con Brothers, I'm thinking about the difference between Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, whereas in Raising Arizona, you might see like two characters drive down the road and, oh, there's a cow. Quick, swerve.
3: Oh, Raising Jim Arizona, a though, right. Here's, uh, you know, Raising Arizona is like slapstick. Like, I, don't, yeah. I don't think Raising Arizona is black comedy. It's,
2: uh... Well, no, it certainly isn't, but one, guy, one kid who can't drive swerving to miss a cow and another guy who shouldn't be alive anymore smacking into the cow is it's. it's it just doesn't work. Any of that end stuff doesn't. Work. And and then the pan up to the sky is like, all right, fine. What are you doing? I don't know what he's doing. The what end. pan up to the sky? What was the pan up to the sky? The, the end of the movie is just him tilting. I'm sorry, tilting the camera up to the sky, and that's the end of the movie. I mean, mm. he doesn't. He doesn't end the movie. He just. I don't think that's correct. Okay, do you guys remember the okay, first? Okay, how shot? does the movie actually end then?
3: Well, do you guys remember the first shot of the movie? The first, I think, probably four or five shots.
2: Them walking across the plane. Nope. No. Nope, nope. can...
3: Good. Right. No. Not at all. So here, here's why. I, uh, here's why. Uh, and because I did have a problem with, not have a problem, but I, I definitely was like, okay, I really feel like John Watts has established that he knows what he's doing as a director. The guy who comes up with that beer bottle as a narrative device for doing mm-hmm. a flashback. Like I was like, why does this guy, who I think is thoughtful, choose to end this movie at this moment? Right. Um, with With these events like the the dispatcher uh you know the fact that it's night um you know, and never mind the you know the killer that wouldn 't die thing with Kevin bacon, yeah, he's coked up whatever but i I was okay with that that uh, but the, the the final shot, I believe is showing that the city at night, like the first no, shots of okay. the city at dawn, the final shot is the city at night, and I think an important part of this movie um. Is as a a journey out of this the city where these kids live, and then back into it. I don't think Uh, it can end until we know that this kid is going to return where he came from. Uh, And we don't we don't actually see the kids in the city, but the the opening shots of the movie um, are basically a series of frames. You know, they're not stills, but a series of shots of the city moving out to this plane, and then we Mm. pick up the kids. All the adventure, except for the stuff with Cameron Manheim, takes place out in the, the wilderness. And then the end, the movie ends when we know, a, it's nighttime,
2: and b, he's about to come back into the city that they ran from. Right, right. Um, but it's, but it's kind of a by pan up to the sky. I mean, like it's kind of a, like a, a rising crane shot of here we are. Wait, well, the today. camera
3: lifting up to show that he's going.
2: Right. That, uh, the city is up ahead. You know, that right, we, right,
3: the right. city lights. Yeah, yeah. A pan. Right, right. It's not like normally I think of a pan up to the sky where the the, the it's sort of like the director doesn't really know, what should I have in my last frame? Well, I don't know. Let's just tilt the camera up, and I'll figure out a point to cut. And then he decides not to cut, so it just ends with blue or whatever. Um, right. like this is clearly a shot of the car descending through the night into the, the, the city that the movie started from. Okay. okay. Um, so uh, – and I think furthermore, an important moment uh, is that he has finally decided to pick up the mic and reach out to the dispatcher. You know, he's made that decision that it's no longer about you know being in trouble. And of course, he's made that decision. He's a kid whose friend is bleeding to death in the back of the seat. But if you look at that final bit, uh, you know, ridiculous or not, uh, I think it's an important. I I think it's it's the image that John Watts wanted to leave us with is kind of a metaphor for how terrifying it is. And this is what I did with my over and under for how terrifying it is for a child. To basically enter that stage of becoming an adult in puberty, uh-huh. uh, and that the metaphor we have here is that a kid going from, you know, ten, eleven, twelve into puberty, into that threshold of, of being an adult and dealing with the, the darkness and the the uncertainty of adult life, uh, you know, the, the metaphor for that in this movie is screaming down a, a, a road at eighty miles an hour with no lights on. Uh, and the siren blaring senselessly, waiting for a curve to kill you. Basically, right. um, you know, not only is I think the kid in the back seat, Travis, dead, but we don't know. You know, if he hits a curve, going that fast, that panicked, he's going to wreck the car. Uh, whether that happens or not is immaterial because I think this is the final image we have of this boy. Um, and furthermore, his final decision is to reach out to adults who can no longer help him. Um, and that is a metaphor for this loss of innocence, you know, this progression from childhood into how terrible uh, – into into the world of adults and how terrible that can be for a child. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I I, I love the ending, and it's also part of this whole idea of, of a journey out of the city and then back into the city. Um, you know, a lot of movies are about characters going into the wilderness to
1: find themselves. Uh, and and, and they, we never know – there's not much – Given to like why they all we all we know is that they ran away. So we don't well, know exactly. If right, actual. right. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Um. And and that gets not to timelessness, but that gives it a kind of a a fable kind of quality. I mean, yeah. a lot and of that. Right,
2: right. When I said fantasy earlier, I think fable is is sure. much more apt way of putting yeah, it. Yeah.
3: Well, I think too of of uh, this isn't my over under, but I'm just now thinking of some of the similarities. Uh Tideland is similarly, named the Terry yeah. Gilliam movie yeah, with that. that this excellent actress named Jodelle Furland. Um playing the, the fantasy of childhood, and Tideland isn't so much about the entry into adulthood, and, it, and that, that, by the way, that's also a black comedy, I think. Um, mm-hmm. That's almost downright gothic and how grotesque Tideland is, um, but I think there's some of that going on here as well, uh, is it's this like fable about these kids who leave the city, have this adventure in, in the wilderness, and at a certain point, we know you cannot survive childhood unscathed. Um, right. And that's when the movie ends, and when this kid has no hope of remain of, of emerging from this unscathed. Um, and then, furthermore, his friend
1: is basically dead. And the lighting's all enter the voidy kind of, which means he's. The, you know,
3: I, that's, that's one thing. So uh, I I love the the imagery that the, just the, the 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 photography of the cop car with no headlights on, the sirens on, backlit by Kevin yeah. Bacon's uh, pickup truck, like uh, yeah. You know, I I love a lot of the imagery in this, like that that great kind of you know Hitcher style look of of things that happen on yep. long stretches of, of of straight road in the middle of nowhere.
1: Right. Yeah, I like could never see the town even. It's just it's all highway. Like this is a highway. Well,
3: we do table. see when Kevin Bacon goes back in. Like for whatever reason, he lives in some area where the road is closed. Uh, like there's a little bit of that. Uh, yeah,
2: but that's not the town, is it? Well, well, it is. I mean, this town is, I mean, that's a really interesting sequence where he goes to his his house, or maybe it's his safe house. I don't know. I mean, I, I love that sequence where he, where he goes in and he, like, where he, for, for, for some reason, smashes a plant. There's dogs, yeah, and there's dogs. And, and the dogs that he cannot, he has no control over. He's like, stop it, stop it, stop it, and they don't. They, they couldn't
3: well, and they am um, so concerned when he snatches the plant too. Like, I love those dogs'
2: reaction. Like, yeah, What's right. he's doing? Right. And then he drives off, and then he drives through a new development that's a road closed development, and that's where the cop pulls him over. in, in this development that's road closed, um, and there's this sort of uh, sort of charming uh, flub where you see an insert shot of the river mirror that shows a trailer park behind him, but it's this this development that's being constructed because the road had closed for that. Well, isn't that, that where I, he lives, Dingus? That's before he gets to his house, I believe. Because he's still trying to the car that yeah. he You're stole right, from the right, trailer right, park before right. he gets to his pickup yeah. truck. Yeah, yeah. Right. and then he just did, he just deserts the car there and then he runs across the plains to get to his house. Right, 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 right. right, right. So, so, so I like a lot of that, I mean, yeah. because a lot of this again has that sort of fable or fantasy yeah. sort of construction of like different areas that you would see in a fantasy. Uh, that's what I was trying to construct in my mind as I was watching this movie.
3: And it did kind of remind me again, I keep back. I, I remember seeing as a kid um, some some Tom Sawyer movie where, you know, the stuff with with like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and Becky was just like super cool for me as a kid. But once it started introducing, isn't there like a character named Injun Joe or something? Yeah, Injun uh, Joe. Yeah. Like the adults were all either. Just incompetent or scary, uh, yeah. and just how weird that tone felt. I got a lot of that from Cop Car, um, mm. and especially once Shea Wiggum shows up, Like, Oh, oh he's going to help what him.
2: What moment is that when they walk mm. away from the trunk and they and they agree, Okay, he's a good guy. Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, yeah. And,
2: and and I think one of the most chilling
3: moments is Shea Wiggum like asking them, You know, do you have a pet? Who do you live with? When he uses that against them, and we see that it works. I mean, that's another kind of t- turning point where. You realize, okay, this might be a black comedy where the kids don't know how dangerous guns are, but at that point, like they're they're genuinely terrified. And when it goes to the shot of Travis's face after Shay Wiggum has said what he's going to do to his family and his pets, right? Yeah, that poor little kid, like it's heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, seeing that poor little kid's reaction. Um. So yeah, so I I just got this, you know, the there's this fable-like quality of the adults all being. These kind of like weird, crazy, evil villains are just incompetent. And even Cameron Manheim, you know, when she shows up, she's not going to save them. She's right. like, you little shit. like she's just as mad at them. Um, and, and she doesn't, you know, she she just gets immediately used as a meat shield. Uh, right. But there are no adults to save these kids or to, to help these kids or tend to them.
1: Um, that's uh, another thing is it stays on her face like that's foreshadowing her to- this, this, the reason I thought she was older, though, is okay. if she's 35, like that's the one age when police believe you if you're a lady? Because if you're too young, they're like, yeah, okay, aliens abducted you, you're 19.
3: Well, the reason did. the police don't believe her is because Kevin Bacon uh, discredits is, her. Is his car. Well, yeah, he discredits right. her. It's his car that she's reported. Um, he says everybody, like, oh. everybody's accounted for.
1: Right, 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 but isn't it the town like oh the town widow, Mrs. McGee, and her fucking milk bottles?
3: It could be that, but I, I mean, I think the more important point is that Kevin Bacon has specifically, like, lied to cover up. You, you know, she sees that there's kids in a police car. Nobody is saying there's a police car missing, um, and yeah, that's obviously frustrating to her. But it's not necessarily that she's she has no credibility. It's that Kevin Bacon has just taken pains to cover for himself.
2: Right. Well, he he also says to to the dispatcher, which I keep trying to say Kira Sedgwick instead of the dispatcher, um, he he says we can just uh, sign this or write this off as a not so, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: And and that whole fable thing that you just said, and and this didn't occur to me at all before, uh, just totally reminds me of, um, oh, good Lord, what's the Paul Walker movie?
3: Damn it! Oh, running scared, exactly. Dingus, just have a big touch
2: of running scared for me. I mean, not
3: as stylized as Running Scared. Running Scared loved to specifically invoke particular fables,
2: you know, like Alice in Wonderland and the Mad Hatter and stuff. But uh, right. but I'm just thinking specifically of him with with that uh, that homeless dude. Yeah. And, and how he had to deal with that, and the way you described in the last sequence that we just went through really reminded me of Running Scared, and I had not thought of that before. Yeah
3: and as far as black comedy too Shea Wiggum, immediately after this horrible like scene of terrifying these kids him stumbling around on the road in his in the road in his ah, bathrobe with the two ah, guns yeah. looking for a place to hide that was utterly ridiculous like in, a, <laughs> in, in an absurd enjoyable funny hilarious what the hell kind of way you know?
2: right yeah. Like the way he, maybe the he's kids. over there. T- maybe he's over there trying to go to the bathroom when he. Right?
3: Oh my God. Yes. Stigus, yes. That line where he's squatting down, trying to hide in the in the grass. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, and it just makes one of the things I do like about this is is this idea of um, how did this transpire? Like when did he surprise these two dudes? Like that. So that one of them is in a bathrobe. Uh, oh, right.
3: The other guy has his jeans and shoes on, and yeah. Yeah.
2: Did he just go – I, I can sort of imagine Quentin Tarantino directing that scene right. where where, uh, where Kevin Bacon bursts in their house, grabs them, drags them, beats them until he thinks they're dead and puts them in the trunk right. of his car. And one of them is in a bathrobe. Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, all been there. So how much do you guys know about this guy, John Watts? Like, I, I presume you guys both know like, why he's a big deal now, like what uh, the significance of his name is.
2: Well, I know that and, uh, he's important because of Spider-Man, but other right. than that, I don't know. I don't know his history.
3: Well, he doesn't have much. That's that's kind of what's noteworthy is this is another Colin Trevorrow instance where oh, he's, okay. he's getting right. plucked out based on the virtue of this indie movie. Uh, so Sony was like, "Yeah, we're, we're going to get this guy to do this by, the next Spider-Man movie."
2: Um, so that's my theory of you know, we'll just get somebody malleable and right. and, and push him along.
1: Yep, yep. Uh, take him over, Mark Webb. Oh, well, who,
3: no, not Mark Webb. Um, is, wait, was that the guy's name? Who's the guy who did Quantum of Solace? Mark Forrester. No. Never mind. No. He's Mark Forrester. Right. I'm,
2: I'm thinking of the guy from the the Vibrant Days of Summer, or whatever. Yeah, Mark Webb.
3: Right. No, you're right. Yeah, I was confusing him with Mark Forrester, um, who's the Monster's Ball guy who, uh, who did a James Bond movie. Um, right. but so, so, uh, John Watts and Christopher Ford, his, his writer, his co-writer on this, uh, they did a movie called Clown, uh, which uh, – so actually, let me back up. Before that, uh, I don't know about Christopher Ford, but John Watts, his background is in doing those Onion videos um, for The Onion of, of newscasters, uh, which are just deadpan uh, humorous – they read humorous stories. like those, those things are hilarious, and that's John Watts' background, is working for The Onion. Um, so at one point, he – and I presume at this point, he's working with Christopher Ford – they do a fake movie trailer for a movie called Clown about an evil clown suit think. Um and in the course of this fake movie trailer, they put at the beginning of it, brought to you by Eli Roth. And Eli Roth had nothing to do with this. Um they just thought it would be a funny way to, to you know, make the trailer look more real. Um so Eli Roth gets wind of this that his name is being used and he contacts the guys and he's like, Hey, I really like this, let's go ahead and and he helps them get the funding together and they do this, this horror movie, Clown, for, uh, Miramax, I believe, for the Weinstein brothers. Uh, so, uh, Clown is terrible, by the way. I, 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 it's, it's hard to get. It never got released here. Uh, it was released on DVD in, uh, the UK, I believe. Um, stupid Eli. And, yeah. And it really does. It really does have Eli Roth's fingerprints all over it. I mean, I don't know how involved he actually was, but it is just, uh, it's just a kind of a gross, not very funny horror movie trying to – that thinks it's funny. And the premise is that there's this ancient demon who inhabits a clown suit. And anytime someone puts on the clown suit, it grafts to the person and turns him into a killer who demands the blood of children. Um, and it's kind of played as a body dysmorphia comedy about this father who at the last minute has to fill in as a clown at his son's birthday party. Uh so he puts on this suit unknowingly, and then it takes him over, uh, and he ends up and
1: having to kill children. Uh, Is the clown's car also possessed, like Christine?
3: No, Kelly Wong, that's, no, that Kelly Wan, now you've just made it ridiculous. I'm that sorry. Makes no
1: sense. Uh, I, I was trying to do some lion taming for your bit.
3: Oh, the bit's done. So, that's, so this guy does clown, which isn't very good, and then for, out of this, he gets together a cop car, and now he's doing the Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland. Uh, was Clown. Wait, did it have what? a K at the Wait, beginning? Hold on, what? It does not have a K, I wanted to see. So Tom Holland is Spider-Man, Dingus. You know this, don't you?
2: No, Tom... Oh, I, I thought you said. I thought you meant Tom Hollander. Sorry.
3: So uh, here's my mnemonic device for this, Dingus, because I've had the same problem. So uh, the guy from Hannah who plays the villain and who's the the, the, the one of the main characters in, in the loop is Tom Hollander. That's what I thought you meant. The uh, diminutive version, the, the child... Who's from that movie, The Impossible? He was one of the voices in Locke. He's in a movie called, oh, what is it? Some young adult post apocalypse, or some young adult thing, uh, exactly. where a nuclear war breaks out called How I See Tomorrow, or something like that. Ugh. No, the, wor- the World I Live in Now, something like that, with Sir Sharonan. Uh, Tom Holland is in that, uh, but Tom Holland, he's the young kid, Tom Hollander, because it's a longer word, he's the older guy. Okay, thank uh, you.
1: So, I, the name, the I've seen the Tom kid.
2: Holland in something, though. Uh,
3: have you finally gotten around to watching Wolf Hall, Dingus? You should.
2: Uh, I know I should, but that's not okay. it. I know I know the name, though. Darn it.
3: Because he's the new Spider-Man, Dingus, and you have your finger on the pulse of comic book developments.
2: Uh, yeah.
3: Spice. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you would know.
2: Yeah, I don't know. All right. I'm going I'll have to figure it out. Sorry. Go ahead.
3: So, at any rate, that's just who John Watts is now. Uh, he's now, you know, got this... You know, it's got to be like at least what 150 million dollar budget dumped into his lap to do a Spider Man movie, and who knows what's going to become of that. The funny thing is, you know, I love I will see this because of John Holland. Uh, I have a lot of respect for for uh, for uh, Tom Holland, and I have a lot of respect for John Watts. Now that I, because I love Cop Car, by the way, I'm crazy. I'm crazier than either of you two put together about this movie. Um, but I still could not care less about a Spider Man movie.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. What's left to care about?
3: I know, right? Like, I don't, especially if they're going to do a whole Origins thing, but, uh, yes. yeah.
1: So,
2: well, I for now, it, right now, it just feels like we're, we're, we're a bunch of spectators as they flip houses. I mean,
3: we are. And we've caught on to it. Oh, that's as far the fun as like, rebooting the franchise? Yeah, yeah, you know,
2: we've seen how many reboots of the Spider-Man now, and it's marketing and they're just trying to money. keep their property within yeah. their studio, so it really does feel like us watching a reality show about flipping houses. Yeah. And I don't but, have, except I don't that there's have... no
1: house at the end of it to actually live in and enjoy. All right, that's a good game. Come on, they're building the Marvel
3: Universe. That's a house, Kelly. They're not. What's the matter with you? What do you mean it's they're not? Different. So so Tom Holland is going to first play Spider-Man in the, uh, the the Civil War movie, and then John Watts' Spider-Man movie comes out, I think, the year after. That's oh, building well, a house, uh, isn't it? That's uh, a house building.
2: Please, please stop it, making if it's, under, if it's under the pavilion of Kevin Feig.
1: I'm it sure. is, yeah. It definitely is. I, they're all – it's all shit now. We?
3: Well, let's talk some over-unders before Kelly Wan brings the room down for uh, – with his uh doom and gloom no about superheroes, universe. yes uh so uh if you look at this as a movie so so this really appealed to me i love this thing i i think it'll i mean i don't know i kind of hate to say this but I, I this is the sort of thing that ends up on my year urine list i it really i love the tone it's unique i love how it followed through being a, a dark comedy uh i love these two child actors they were just so good um uh so my over-under are, are these kind of fable-like movies about how terrifying it can be to be a child on the brink of adulthood, um, and that's ultimately how this worked for me. Uh, so my over-under, and under, I both like a lot. My under, I, I slightly prefer Cop Car, is a really weird, obscure Philip Ridley movie called The Reflecting Skin, uh, which is a Canadian production – it's mainly notable for being a super early Viggo Mortensen movie. Uh, and it's about a little boy whose older brother, played by Viggo Mortensen, has just come back from World War II. Um, and the movie strongly implies that he is dying of radiation poisoning because he was present during the testing of the, the atomic bomb. Uh, however, the child, not quite understanding this, uh, thinks it's because the, the older brother's new girlfriend. The child thinks that this woman is a witch or a vampire and is sapping his older brother's life force. So, uh, it's basically, uh, has this fable quality where the child imagines there are monsters when really it's just the onset of technology. Uh, so I like <laughs> cop car slightly better than Reflecting Skin. Uh, ref- uh, Cop Car is not, however, quite as good as Moonrise Kingdom. Um, hmm. Which I really like a lot. Remember? I do.
2: No, but I can I can see how you would put those in the same sentence.
3: That, that works. And Kelly Wand, what have you done with the over/under for this?
1: Uh, first, off, I just want to say that's not how witchcraft works, but it is close. Um, my over is uh, Hannah, I think. to your shock and horror, and my under is Mac and May. Your shock and
3: horror. So you're very closely bracketed. Bracket. See, I don't go by the brackets.
1: My brackets are really wide. You
3: just wide. randomly pick a movie that's better and it's not as good.
1: No, they're both about loss of innocence and
3: Mac and bad. Me is about loss of innocence. What isn't that? A, is, oh, he's an alien. He's not a robot. Isn't Mac and yeah. Me like an ET ripoff?
1: Yeah, but he's in, the kid's in a wheelchair. So oh, and isn't Mac and learn. Me the one that has like McDonald's branding? Like yeah, yeah, okay. And Coke. The aliens drink Coke. It's the one thing that keeps them. is it
3: Mac and their... Me is in a wheelchair? Yeah. Oh, I feel bad that I dismissed it. That's, oh.
1: There's a part where he falls off a cliff uh, for no reason. That should that's and, and is that the end of the movie? <laughs> <sounds> no, like- <laughs> the end of the movie. <laughs> oh. Near the end, a grocery store explodes, and then the kid in the wheelchair dies from the explosion in the wheelchair. Oh, and
3: that brings him back to life like E.T.
1: I'm assuming that happens, but that's always where I turn the movie off because I just pretend that's the end.
3: All ah, right, very good, Kellyanne. You're like doing yeah. your own editing.
1: Yeah. yeah, I do a I do a cop car edit. Right. Right. Yeah, cool. uh, all
2: right. You, you have a wide bracket, like Larry Craig.
1: Yeah, and like uh, Larry the Cable Guy. Alright, Fair enough.
3: Degas, what are your over and under for Cop Car?
2: All right. So my over would be. Um, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't bracket them on themology uh, the way you did. I really respect the way you did it, Tom, but I did not. Um, I just went with uh, movies that it made me think of as I was watching this in different ways um, I was kind of leaning toward uh, Stand By Me for a long time uh, okay. but I, I had to go against that because I really really like Stand By Me uh, so the over for this would have
3: Can I just say before you do your over under dingus real quick because I want to talk
2: about the, the Stand By
3: Me comparison I, I don't think there's anything really like Stand By Me strikes me as as a movie told Written by and told by an adult, re- recalling like childhood. I mean, Stand By yes, Me is very yeah. much a. Is there such a thing as a recollection movie? I don't know. Um, like, it's not It's not the life of the Memo mind. Pick. It's not the life of the child, of the children as it's occurring. It's the no, no, adult no. looking back on the events. Like, there's this very, uh, I don't know, like, adult quality to Stand By Me. Like, I don't feel like. Like you talked about implausibility here. I kind of feel like in Stand By Me, like they're not real kids. Like River Phoenix, by the way, amazing in that movie. Um, But the kids don't feel real to me. They feel like an adult
2: reminiscing.
3: Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely, and the movie does not make any bones about that. I mean it starts – it's bracketed by the fact that Richard Dreyfuss is playing Stephen
1: King talking about his childhood. Right, right. I mean can we agree O'Connell's fat
2: in that?
3: That's the – that I'll accept because because look how it turned out so I don't feel bad
2: yeah it's adult sized yeah so so absolutely you're absolutely right and that's one of the things that's I think pleasing about it to me is 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 that sort of memoir aspect to it and uh, and that you're looking at it through the lens of memory and we understand that um, and that
3: and this is just like my own thing that's one thing that I just drove me bonkers about it I was just like oh god I'm listening to some old guy talk about when he was a kid. Uh, because I, I watched it, uh, I guess, a, a few months ago and didn't remember much about it. Um,
1: and was like just, a white dude oh,
2: rap. Well, what what I love about it is that fact. And right. I remember even seeing it the first time as a kid in high school. And this is one of the – actually, Sam Me's might be the first movie I ever wrote about because there there's a couple lines he says, like, um, I, I never had any friends like I had when I was – 12 years old and even at that age I knew wait, that's not true, what what are you talking about? Uh, I've had plenty of friends that I would prefer over anybody (laughs) who was my friend at 12 years old and so at that point I knew as a high school kid uh, well this is just some old dude reminiscing about being a young kid and it it is is, is a nostalgic movie for that reason Uh, and that's why I love it so much but but I, I prize it in a different way than I prize other movies, so I think it's a little bit above, a little too high above as far as bracketing is concerned. Right. All right, so, so yeah, so you didn't include Stand By Me. I cut you off, but I just wanted to, to mention that. All right, so where, which direction did you go then? No problem whatsoever. Um, th- this is really just uh, sort of a. <laughs> Sort of. This might be just related to props or physical things that are going on in the movie, but uh, I would put Joy Ride just above this. Um,
3: wow! Oh my God, dingus! Oh, yeah. man. above it, punch right to my gut.
2: I'm sorry about that. I really love the movie Joy Ride, <laughs> and I realize we've already talked about uh, Paul Walker uh, because you made me think about uh, Running Scared, but every time that Kevin's Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very different kind of uh ride movie that that Kevin uh bacon talks, hey boys, boys in especially in the last scene, and you see the the c b or not it's not even the c b it's the police radio right. like registering his voice, I just kept thinking about Ted Levine going <laughs> candy cane, yeah and the train. yeah, oh my God. <laughs> But I really I – I have a real deep love of of Ride, and I could just remember these two boys growing up to be Steve Zahn and Paul Walker. Oh, you know what? I like that.
3: Okay, okay. I think that's right.
2: Yeah, if, if, if we can imagine that um, – jeez, I can't even remember the poor kid's name now. Travis uh, is the one who dies, and the other one we don't remember. Yeah, Travis. I, I can't remember. it. It's uh, – Jesus, I can't – it's a Harrison or something. I, don't, I can't remember. Um but, uh, but if I can re- imagine that guy growing up to be Paul Walker and the other kid growing up to be Steve Zahn uh, and they're brothers. I, I think they were brothers. So anyway, Joy Ride is my, is my top one. Uh, the one that's underneath is one that I watched again this week thinking, well, maybe this one is better than I remember it because I remembered it being really a good movie. I thought this would be my over. But, it, uh, but it's basically a kid in danger uh, with a criminal uh, on the road, and this is a movie called A Perfect World. Do you guys remember this movie? Yeah, oh,
3: the Kevin that's Costner
2: right. thing, right? Kevin yeah, Austin. Kevin Costner. It's directed by Clint Eastwood. Um, oh, God, that's right. Yeah. Who's
3: uh, the other main actor in that?
2: Who plays the law? Lo- the uh, the cop
3: who's chasing him. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Oh, oh, Clint Eastwood is even oh. in it. Yeah. Oh my God, that's how little I remember about that. Okay.
2: Yeah, he, he plays he played, the cop like, The, the marshal that's that's chasing him. It's, and it's weird because they commandeer a, a trailer that's used for a campaign, and they're chasing after the dude. Uh, um it has Laura Dern in it as well. It's um, But uh, but once you watch it – and actually, <laughs> the weird thing is Bradley Whitford has a weird little rule in it. Um, the guy from West Wing that, and, yeah. and uh, Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, exactly. Um but unfortunately – and I was really – I really had high hopes for this because I remember really liking this when I saw it. I think it's from 19 – it's from the early 90s. Um, and, and I remember really liking it. I was surprised that I liked it because Kevin Costner was shockingly playing a bad guy. It's another Kevin playing a bad guy. Um But it's so embarrassing once it gets down to the final, like who's going to shoot who, and the accents are terrible, and the music is horrible. One thing that I will say that uh, about um, Cop Car is that some of the music threw me off early on. Uh, It had this weird, almost comedic quality to it uh, that I couldn't, that that I didn't know quite how to to place. Um, It reminded me of music from. I don't know. It, it it just had this weird, almost vaudevillian quality. It was weird the way the music went in Cop Car. But at least it wasn't this schmaltzy, just utterly putrid music that happens at the end of A Perfect World. Did Trin Eastwood score A Perfect World? I don't think he did. I okay. think it's just a standard... Hollywood we're going to try to make a thriller score kind of thing where at least cop car I don't think goes for that uh but but um but the thing is I love the the things I love about a perfect world are the way that Kevin Costner's a criminal cuz the storyline is that he's broken out of prison he it, it there's a little like a little desperate hours moment where uh, he and his, and the, and his partner wind up in this woman's house and then they they have to run off uh, and take her son hostage, one of her kids hostage Oh, and that's the premise, he's on the run with the kid? Right, he's on the run ah. with the kid and it's basically how he gets the kid to trust him and so there's this great scene where Kevin Costner's character has to go into the service station to get a bunch of groceries for them or whatever, but the guy in the back seat who's his partner, can't be trusted anymore for whatever reason and um, Kevin Costner hands the gun off to the kid and says, "You know, you keep an eye on him." And then he just leaves the car. And it's it's the little ways that Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner's character, as bad as his accent is, trains that kid to trust him. In that moment in the trunk with, um, uh, geez, I want to say Scoop McTernan, Scoop Shay Wiggum. Thank you, Shea, Shea Wiggum. Bray gets those kids to trust him in that little moment. Right. And the way that later on... You like naked girls? You like naked ladies? Exactly, yeah. You like naked ladies? Look at you, some playboys. And then that's another thing, actually, Tom, that made me put it in sort of a... uh,
3: Ah, right. These days, you're right. Yeah, that is pretty backwards, isn't it? Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, And then later on, when Kevin Bacon's like trying to get their trust as well, uh, the way Kevin Costner gets that kid's trust by handing him the gun and then walking off into the store... I like the way that they bond. Uh, so anyway, perfect world. Imperfect world. Anyone with you? Oh, Jesus! I have no idea. He's okay. no—I don't think he ever went anywhere. All right.
3: It's not like it grew up. It's hey, it's Luke Wilson. It's the kid. Yeah, perfect he okay. didn't become Haley Joel Osment or anything.
1: All right. I do an old lady in an aquarium.
0: One two three. Not only you <laughs> and me that one eighty dollars. Three is
1: I'm
0: between counting. One two three. <laughs> <theater> <laughs> <department>. <laughs> <laughs> sea, mm.
1: Mm. Mm. I wouldn't call it reflective.
3: I don't know. Why minutes. was it called that? I don't know why it was called that. It's probably based on a novel or something.
2: Whenever no. you say that, I think you're talking about sheltering this guy. I don't know why.
3: No, no. That's I, actually in my notes when I was writing it. I When I came back... Uh, so we're going to record tonight, and I was going over my notes. So I was like, my under is under the skin? What? Why did I pick that? <laughs> so, I got the skin part, but
1: yeah. Under the skin's never an yeah. under.
3: Uh, Kelly Wan, that is a very good point.
1: Yeah. Very well done. Ironically. But did you right, see my what point What I was trying
3: For oh, yeah. uh, a 3x3 three three forest tonight, I think is what we got. All right, mm.
2: this 3x3 three three is your favorite shadows in movies. I might have screwed this up. What? Uh, what? Uh, well, yeah, We'll
3: see. Kelly Juan, uh, you're going first because you're introducing next week's topic. So uh,
1: why
3: don't you start us off with your number three favorite shadow in a movie?
1: Now I'm dying to hear yours. Um, but my number three favorite shadow in a movie is from the movie Drag Me to Hell with the goat shadow because that scared me. And I didn't think I could be scared of goats. I thought they were on my own. Not scared of list. Mm-hmm.
3: Goats are scary. Have You seen their eyes?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And their uh, hooves.
3: Explain, they got horns. Explain the uh, the the shadow scene from Dragman. What is this scene you're talking about?
1: Oh, uh, well, it's like the second day of um, her eating disorder slash possession. Wait, it's not a possession. Carry Me is just a
3: gypsy curse.
1: I mean, it's, it's that gypsy simple. curse. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And she keeps hearing her iron gate, makes noises like a lamia um, trying to annoy her. But she tries to write it off. And then um, the second day, uh, she sees a shadow under her bedroom door after it like, throws her around. And throws her up some stairs, right? Or is it in the bedroom? Anyway, and then the shadow's outside the door, and it's goat hooves.
3: And it's, it's a shadow of the hooves. Right. Oh, that doesn't seem very scary. Okay. Oh, like under the door? I'm Because I'm not remembering this. Uh,
1: yeah, it's under the door, and it's by day. And then it made me think, oh, so you can – Lamy cast shadows by day, even though they're invisible.
3: Can I wonder, all your picks from horror movies?
1: Um, not one of them.
3: All right. I was which to, I mean. I was going to try to not do horror movies, but I just, I was, I, failed well, I didn't to want see. to screw up the topic,
1: so I erred on the side of conservativeness.
3: All right. Because there aren't, yeah, there there aren't a lot of shadows in non-horror movies, really, when you think about it. They, they light those things, right? You don't want shadows if you're not making a horror movie.
1: I don't know. It's, uh, in The Grudge, there's not a lot of shadows. Oh, I still haven't seen that. You know what, Kelly? I'm <sighs> kind of scared to see it. That should make you want to see it. I know. I know, right? What happened to the young Tom Chick who saw Jaws with his sister?
3: Well, I, I know. Yeah, like I watch horror movies. Hands like hands over his eyes. If I'll go with Dingus if we're seeing it for the podcast or something. But to just sit alone at night and see a movie that I know is going to scare me. Like I'll see something that I think is going to be crappy and then maybe it's good. And I'm like, oh, that was great. But to actually sit down and, and think, okay, I'm going to watch this movie. I know it's going to freak me out. But I'm going to watch it. I'm like, no, nah, I'll just... Josh
1: Holloway, Ventriloquist Demi movie won't
3: Right, yeah, name. I'll just watch something <laughs> stupid. Right, exactly.
1: Yeah, I sounds like a Rush song.
3: <laughs> Which album is that from, Dingus?
1: Uh, Roll the Bones.
3: Is that a Rush album? Did Dingus just troll me, Kelly Wand?
1: I think Tom okay. sounds like Barry Gibb. All right, I've had enough of I- you jokers. Oh.
3: All right, my number three favorite shadow... Uh, And the reason I think I screwed it up is because these are dangerously so. All of mine are from horror movies, and all of them are shadows as these kind of um, existential expressions of horror. So it's not just lighting tricks. And actually, some of them might in fact be silhouettes. Uh, Oh, see, Uh, no, okay, well, no, you know, I can fix this. I can fix this. All right, my number three is uh, what's the difference. Uh, well, a silhouette is actually a, a physical object which is just not lit. A shadow is the is the, the area where light <laughs> is blocked by the physical object. The silhouette is the object itself, right, Dingus?
1: Right. Yeah. Dingus sounded very upset that you well, had, you possibly had a well, silhouette. I was watching bus- a
2: lot of these but things. I, I, a lot of the things that I was going for, a, a couple of them turned out to be silhouettes, and I and I. I, I shy away from them, but I don't think those. No, no, are no I
3: can, things. I can fix this. I can fix this. I can make all of these technically shadows. I've got this. All right. Huh. All right. So uh, my number three is a is a movie that um, uh, we, actually we talked about this guy Brad Anderson earlier on the podcast. He did a movie called Vanishing on Seventh Street, um, oh. where the actual uh, the, the monster, or what have you, the evil, and again, this is just existential horror. So it, but they play with this idea that, that darkness will kill you, like darkness is evil. And when they introduce this, the very beginning of the movie, uh, there's a security guard, uh, like in a mall or something, and he's just, you know, he's heard a noise or whatever and he's investigating, uh, and he's shining a light in this store and there are these scary, uh, silhouettes of the mannequins. And the moment that you know something is wrong and that this is, in fact going to be a horror movie that breaks rules is when a shadow actually moves and like jumps at him um and it's a it's a it's a a great in the sense of extreme i don't know uh jump scare like it's total jump scare uh and it's because the shadow moves and you don't expect a shadow is going to do that uh and then later on the movie plays with a lot of stuff with uh With shadows attacking people or closing in on people. Uh, if you have a light source that is dying, you're in danger. People, like, have to hide in the light. Uh, John Leguizamo has a great scene where he basically gets swallowed up by shadows. Um, and the movie's a little clunky. Like, it's not, it's not brilliant. But that, that shadow scare at the opening of it definitely got me.
1: So, which movie?
3: It's called The Vanishing on Seventh Street.
1: Oh,
2: Vanishing on Seventh Street. Yeah, I really, I really, really like that movie. Ah. I, I, and I didn't even think about it. And it, it's all about shadows. I really like yeah. that you chose that. And that, that opening, that thing that you're talking about right now is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, I actually am a big fan of that movie. Okay. I, I agree, it's not perfect. But I, I like the way it builds its tension. I like the way it works. Yep. And it's got some great...
3: Uh, uh, Andy Newton in it, and uh, yeah. it's that that Christian Haydenson fellow being Hayden less annoying. Oh. fellow being less annoying than normal, and uh, Hayden
1: Pinhaschay fellow.
3: I, I, I don't know what it's, it's. It's Hayden. Oh, right, right. I see. Right, I see what you see. It's yep. a callback. Something dumb. <laughs> Dingus, what is your number three favorite shadow in a movie?
2: All right, my number three is. Uh, here's a quote from it: uh, "You got to be smart to be a president." Let me be a vice president. That's a real idiot's job. I can't imagine what this quote has to do with his shadow. All right, it has nothing to do with it. Um, this is what inspired the topic because uh, we play a game on the forums that involves putting uh, frames from certain movies up to try to get people to guess. What those frames are, and And, you don't just
3: put up a frame; is you have to stop the frame at the twenty minute twenty second mark, and in the forty minute forty second mark. um, And if it's a dead giveaway because the lead actors in it or whatever,
2: then it's the breaks. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, And the third frame that you would have to put up would would have to be the sixty sixty, which would be at an hour and a minute. Basically, Right. Um, yes, and, and this particular frame at this particular moment has this awesome, long, weird, uh, but beautiful shadow that I would not expect of this director at this particular time in his career. And this is from the movie Bananas. Um, oh, the,
3: my oh. God. <laughs> how I want, can you believe him, what he's doing to us in this
1: podcast? Look and, how long he did it for. Too.
2: Oh, my
3: God. I know. I was totally like, wow, what's he going to talk about? And it's bananas. He tried to massage
1: it like, hey, yeah, remember the game, Tom? From your Watch
2: me reel these guys face? in, especially yeah. Tom. Yeah, yeah. So there's this great um, <laughs> this <laughs> shadow. It's great shadow. There of, of, uh, if, you can, if I can sort of paint the picture for you uh, of a long shot down a down a hallway and there's a staircase at the end of the hallway and the light pouring down that hallway and three characters walking down that staircase and their shadows are falling away from the light down, spilling down onto the floor. And so it looks like these two, these three tall dudes walking down the staircase and it looks really ominous. And it's at this moment where the characters in Bananas have, have, uh, have convinced Fielding Mellish that he is going to be the leader of their revolution. Uh he's gonna be the new president of their revolution. And they're walking down the stairs and this this shadow spills down the hallway at exactly this moment, at the at the one hour, one minute mark of this movie, of this great, scary, long I mean it's a great shadow, but What's great about this particular moment is that as they walk down the stairs, it it becomes clearer and clearer that the two dudes on either side of Woody Allen are these big, strapping guys, and he's this little homunculus, and the shadow sort of transmogrifies so that it looks like, in the next couple of seconds, that Woody Allen becomes E.T., or this little, sad little alien, as they're walking, and between the two of them, continue to look like like grown men uh leading a revolution, the guy that they're going to put forth as their puppet dictator looks like a little tiny alien from uh you know one of the old alien movies. He's just a like a little guy like between them, and it's just great the way that shadow just morphs so uh so yeah, bananas
3: Carrie one, does that make you want to see bananas again
1: um It doesn't sound very appealing. what's your second favorite shadow in a movie okay i'm gonna save it i thought of a better one than what i had um in, in kung fu hustle uh there's a part where a dude's walking down an alleyway and there are these assassins playing this weird musical instrument behind him Uh, He doesn't know that he's in danger yet, but, like, when they play notes, it sends out these, like, blades, these, like, invisible blades that, like, cut anything. And so he's walking away from them, and you can tell what's happening by the shadows over his head, like a cat's jumping off a fence, and then as it jumps in slow motion. That's another thing. It's all in slow motion. It's, like, the cat's, like, halves get severed, and then, like... um, Leaves come off the twigs and stuff, and then uh a bunch of other stuff happens, so that's my number two,
3: huh all right a cat's halves get severed
1: <laughs> it's like he jumps off the fence in slow motion, his shadow and then um all right, so it's a little the sh- little mm-hmm. yeah, it's a shadow cat, and then the halves just go flying in different directions <laughs> huh. at a certain juncture of its uh. And, you know, we're both cat lovers. We're both animal friends of the animal, so it's it's unusual that, you would, that I would find that an effective... Well, I'd rather see the movie. shadow than the actual cat, so... Right. You know, well, and then you so. don't see his actual beheading. Like, the character also gets whacked, whacked mm-hmm. too, but you don't see it.
3: just the shadow. All right, beheading. so uh, Kung Fu Hustle, will little Stephen mm-hmm. Chow movie.
1: Ah, oh, you should see it. It's really Of course good. I saw it. I've seen Kung Fu Hustle. What's the matter with you? Don't you don't remember that part? It's the guy... It was the strong dude of those three guys. Uh, nope. It was like... Sorry the tailor with the rings Mm -hmm. wait that was a different guy yeah sorry i'm sure it was awesome kelly wand shadow it was a really good shadow
3: all right so here's my my number two uh the specific one i wanted to do was a guy standing behind a plastic uh like translucent plastic sheeting and you see his silhouette clearly not a shadow um but I, I can get around this because there are – and also in this movie, there are a lot of um, – they're not light shadows, but like they're ash shadows. Like uh, you see those pictures of people who are basically vaporized at Hiroshima right. and their outline is on the wall. That, that's not a shadow, is it? Is that a shadow, I or,
1: or an Iron Man 3. Angus? Is that a that's a silhouette. Of I, silhouette? Is it- I don't know if you're vaporized on the wall. It's
2: more of a diorama.
3: It's well, we're not going to pick those. So these uh, occur in well, but there's an actual bona fide shadow, and I'll call this one out. So uh, the original, the Japanese movie Pulse, which in Japanese is called Kairo or Cairo or whatever, uh, but in, in the U.S. like it's it's translated as Pulse. Um, uh, has when characters die, they just uh, are replaced by these these uh, burn marks on the wall or these stamps on the floor. Uh, oh. However. There is a moment in Pulse where, uh, uh, there, so there are a lot of ghosts too in Pulse, and at one point, uh, the ghosts are moving 3D shadows. They can just walk around, and when you first meet one of these, uh, and it's this great juxtaposition of, it's, it's in one of these gaming arcades in Japan with all these flashing lights, and it's super bright, and one of the ghosts is a shadow who walks around in here, and this is, you know the main character sees the ghost uh, as a shadow walking around in pulse, um, hmm. but there's a lot of more creepy stuff which is all which is technically silhouettes or these burn mark things, um, and they do a lot of cool tricks where uh, an actor is standing there, and then they'll uh, you know they'll they'll the area gets dark, and then when it's light again, the actor is gone, and there's just the the silhouette, uh, and they do an even scarier thing where the silhouette is there. And the area is in darkness, and when the light comes up, ah, the dude is standing there all of a sudden, and it's super mm-hmm. Um So Pulse does a lot of great stuff with what I think you would call silhouettes, but one of the later ghosts in the movie is definitely a shadow that's walking around in a brightly lit uh, arcade, which is super creepy.
1: You know what you just maybe realize is that – and maybe I'm forgetting one, but I remember now there's no shadows in, um It Follows.
3: I, I was thinking of that too, because you don't need shadows because they're actual characters, like it's actual people, right? I mean, there might—they're not actual same. people, are they?
1: I thought it was—if uh, it changes its appearance, it's a person. I don't right?
3: know. I, like you okay, always like—you don't have to imply that there's a monster there because they just show the person that is currently the incarnation of the demon. Um, if, I, I was, if I was—I was thinking of it follows too, and I don't recall any like, freaky shadow scenes there.
1: No, I don't either. But I always thought it was like you're seeing something that's not actually there, so the shadow would be different. Oh, oh I see what so- you're saying, right.
3: And, oh, and yeah, also yeah. it's
1: invisible.
3: That makes me then want to go back and look for what they did with shadows, like the shadows yeah. actor, yeah. Dennis, do you know? Is it- Did you go back and look at It Follows?
2: Uh, I did not, but it... <laughs> other than what you're talking about, um, that time when the guys at the pool... Um, I thought there would be a shadow there, but I think you guys are right that it, it the movie pretty much takes these guys head on. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows the people who are coming at them, and it doesn't shy away from that, right? Right, right.
3: Yeah. yeah, and they do cast shadows, even though only one of the characters might be able to see them. Right, because
2: one of the things that I was talking about, or that I was thinking about this, is that there's a lot of cool movies that – have shadows going on in the background incidentally, but I wanted to go with things that I, I felt were specific, like that's a that's, there's a reason why the shadow appears. Right, right. Alright, well this is you. What's your
3: second favorite instance of this?
2: Alright, well this is quite an obvious one. Um, and this is, uh, other than my number one, this is my number one is my favorite instance of a shadow ever, but this is my favorite scene that has the way shadows work in a scene, um, so perfectly. And, and, uh, and it starts with this great scene, and this is in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, if oh, you'll forgive me. Um, and it's when Marion is in her, uh, in her Himalayan dive, uh, she's just gotten done having this whole drinking contest. And she's turned to the wall, and you see Indiana Jones' shadow appear behind
3: oh, yeah. her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, perfect.
2: Um, the fedora and everything. Yeah. Exactly. So you see the, the shadow of him behind her, and, and then you hear his voice. And she turns around and looks at him, and the shadow kind of shifts, and then she throws the shot glasses. Um, but that whole... I was just thinking of that specifically but the way that whole scene is shot um Spielberg has such a control over and I cannot imagine how they choreographed this but the shadows in this scene are phenomenal I mean the you know it, it's not just you know seeing some guy punch another guy in the background like in Temple of Doom uh like you're you're having two characters fight in a shadow fight uh the The shadows seem to be characters in the scene, and then how he uses shadows throughout that, even before that, even before Indiana Jones comes back so so Indiana Jones comes in, you see his figure over her, and that really iconic her standing there against the wall, holding the two shot glasses against her head and seeing his 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 whole figure, as you said, Tom, with the fedora like right behind her. Uh, but then she tells him to get out of here. And as he leaves, he turns and he looks and the shadow of that, uh, that door that is, that has those diamond cut. Um, I don't know. The, the diamond cuts of the door and the, and the shadow of of that diamond cut over his eye is another great example of how the shadows work, but how the shadow works throughout the whole scene that plays out later on um, with all of the fighting. Oh man. I just you know, as much as I've come to criticize it was Bilberg for later things like Super Eight, which was almost my under for the movie we just did, um the way he controls shadows in that scene, the, that fight scene and Indiana you know, Jones I, I cannot understand how you choreograph that kind of shadow work. It's it's phenomenal. It can't be accidental. It's probably all CG.
3: It might be. It might very so well much way. CG in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Except for the shadows. Kelly, did you like how uh, Dingus thought we were going to make fun of him for picking Raiders of the Lost Ark? He was like, if you'll forgive me, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like he thought we were going to react to that the way we did Bananas. Yeah, like they're the same. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, Dingus, no one ever has to apologize for putting Raiders of the Lost Ark in a 3x3. Three three.
2: But it seems Which rather we, easy until you really watch the scene and see it with the craft in it. It, it, it just... Oh, my God. Well,
3: that's true of so much yeah, of Raiders. I, I mean, Raiders is no – like, that whole – I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is that it, it, it gradually falls apart till we get that right. Crystal Skull crap. But Raiders yeah. is – you know, he's at the top of his game doing that. Yeah. he's young. Us, never apologize. Right. This is the guy who gave us Jaws. He, he was yeah. still the Jaws director when he did Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. Wait, that's the that's same guy? Game of shit. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, it was Roy Scheider. so glad George Lucas wasn't involved in that movie. Jaws? Raiders of the Lost Ark. No. Uh, all right. So uh, it is now Kelly Wan's turn for his favorite use of shadows in any movie of all movies. Kelly Wan, what's the best use of a shadow in a movie?
1: I consider this the best use of a shadow in a movie, even though I consider it one of the worst movies ever made. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But this is part of my – you can always learn from bad movies and hmm? you can find good things in bad movies. I do so you So you think. should never just dismiss. Um and it was also, like, one of the first shots of the movie, so I remember thinking, oh, wait, this movie's going to be fine. I don't know why I heard such bad buzz about it. It's going to be great. And then the rest of the movie happened. But, like, <sighs> hold my hand, Dingus. I may need you on this one. Um, okay. At the beginning of Independence Day. No,
3: that's iconic. No, I mean, that's another one. Like, now yeah. you have to apologize for putting an Independence Day in a 3x3, three three, but you don't have to apologize for this use of shadows because it's it's, it's it's totally iconic.
2: It's Oh, probably, I didn't think about that. That's a good – oh. Okay, yeah, that's a, a an obstructive
1: shadow almost. It's great filmmaking
2: yeah, against all logic. I didn't even logic. think about that type of I thing. I
1: think it's
3: it's the only instance of great filmmaking that Roland Emmerich has ever done. Yeah,
1: he got he went off to he got off to a great start. Oh, um, I kind of I kind of like this. I didn't even consider this
2: kind of shadow.
1: I yeah, this is awesome. I'm referring, of course, to the ship's shadow overshadowing. Um, yeah, yeah, overshadowing. Of that's on great. the Moon. So it's Holy like it's literally eradicating human footprints and human civilization on the moon.
3: Oh, they I was did. thinking more of just the, the shots of it like coming over cities and people looking up and but right. yeah, that moon shot. No,
1: the moon's yeah. my favorite because it's uh it's symbolic too. And it's just like Oh yeah, I like, mean, we've already lost a monument with like, the credits. The Washington monument being overshadowed or whatever, yeah. That's great. The moon uh, so, somehow meant more to me because it's like that's a very fragile artifact, and it just comes in. And, like it was kind of like in uh, Star Trek V, Dingus, when the Klingon ship bashed into Voyager absentmindedly. <laughs> that's why we needed seat belts that summer. Okay, what were we going to say, Tom? <laughs> uh,
3: no, that's a good. Like, is that from something though? Like, was Roland Emmerich doing an homage to like some Godzilla movie or something where something colossal blocks out the sun?
1: Oh, it was pre-Godzilla. I'd like to not give him credit No, no, for I
3: mean, mean the original Godzilla. Like, was that, was that a, a trademark of giant monster movies, for instance?
1: Uh, Godzilla was never on the moon, eh?
3: No, oh, wait. the idea of like people looking up and a shadow passes over them. Like a big old shadow comes over a city. Like like to show the idea of something enormous without having to show the enormous thing itself.
2: Um, boy, um, I don't know. The Day the Earth Stood Still or something? But I, yeah, I don't they remember have... it. Although we even, this and Back to the Future. Still. Wasn't it just the yeah.
3: one ship in Day the Earth
1: stood still? But or didn't the- it still do it? that? Didn't it like didn't the Earth, the ship's shadow and her Davyir stood still like? It might because
3: I, I I I refuse to believe it, that Roland Emmerich came up with that. He's obviously
1: I know. But you Some know what? The moon Eyes probably did it. I think I'm a moon fetishist.
3: The moon bit is good. No, you are right. We can give him credit for that. But just this idea of of showing these ships blocking out the sun. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. And Superman too didn't didn't Zod and those fuckwads do shit on the moon? sticks as yeah. They
2: they fucked around with the man. Yeah.
1: yeah. But what? Yeah.
2: All mm-hmm. right, <laughs> my
3: favorite use of shadow, and again, this was uh, a lot of this was cheating. I mean, there are many scenes where there are silhouettes, but this is specifically there is a shadow sequence, so I'll call that one out. But this is more like a body of work thing. Um, is the ceiling shadow version of the Babadook. Um, so in baba duke jennifer kent the director gets a lot of mileage out of not showing us stuff showing us glimpses of things that are mostly in dark uh during the final confrontation um there's this great i presume it's some big old it's not animatronic it's not like moving around or anything but there's a there's a practical effect that she uses mainly by keeping it mostly dark and just lighting the edges of it but those are silhouettes i'm not talking about that uh there's a sequence where uh I think Essie Davis is the actress's name. Uh, she's asleep in bed and she looks at the ceiling and the Babadook moves up along the ceiling as a shadow. Uh, right. And then it turns around and it falls on her. So it's a, like a dream sequence. But it's clearly, at that point, a shadow on the ceiling. Uh, so there's my favorite. And all three of mine are, as I mentioned, uh, horror movies where the shadow represents some sort of existential horror. Uh, right. All right. So, uh, Dingus, what is your favorite Woody Allen use of shadows, right? In here's a
2: cinema. Here's a quote from it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we at war with Norway. Well, it's got to be the thing. Yeah, yeah. Which shadow? Uh,
3: oh, the dog. Dingus is nice. Dingus is oh, the oh, yeah. dog shadow. That's
2: a great one. Yeah. That all is right. A good that, one. This is my favorite shadow in movies of all time, and uh, and this is the one that creeps me out most. And what made me love. Oh, but wait, love. it's
3: not the dog though. It's 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 just uh, Richard Mazer, right?
2: Right. It's yeah. it's him. And what I kept thinking is I before I watched the thing again this week was it was a shadow of the dog walking in, but it's not. Right. It's the dog working his way down the hall, and then he goes – he's kind of working his way. He's finding his way. I mean, oh, man, watching the thing again is such a pleasure.
3: And is it clear that it's Richard Maser? Like do we know from a baseball cap or
2: something, or is it just we know there's a person in there? Wait, Maser's a- not infected. I don't think I don't know who it is, but okay, it's that, sorry, it's Clark, that great it's moment the... where the dog comes is about to come in the room and you see the guy's head. And then the dog goes in, you don't see the dog anymore and then he turns. Um, it's just the that, that the suggestion of what is going to happen because you know since everybody else has gone off to the Swedes to take care of that uh, and now the dog just has kind of the room to base. And he's kind I of looking around. around, he's looking around for people. Um, I didn't remember that aspect of it. I didn't remember how the dog was working his way down the hall and looking in different rooms. And then he finds this one room with somebody in it. And then you see the guy's shadow. And then the dog goes in and the guy turns. And I just remember every time I see that scene, I remember the first time I really noticed that. And it gives me a chill. Every time I think about the way that shadow turns.
3: Right. Kelly's right, though, is that it's not – you're right, Kelly. It's not – like the Clark, the shadow is that we don't know who it is. And and, it turns out that Clark is not infected when they kill him.
1: It's Uh, Blair or um, Palmer. Right. Uh, Yeah.
3: But that's the point in a shadow is we're like, oh, who is that? Like it's to avoid showing the actual actor. John Carpenter's like, well, we want to make it clear there's a person in there who's going to get turned. But
1: you right. don't know who it is, yeah, exactly. And Macer's the decoy protagonist,
2: right. I think. Yeah. Right. But oh man, it's it's a it's about fifteen minutes into the movie and, and I love the way that all of this is structured. Yeah. And at the, at this time in this scene, I don't know if you guys remember this, but Superstitious by Stevie Wonder is playing at that time. Yes. Ah, right. Nice. Which is a really weird juxtaposition to that creepy feeling that you're supposed to be having as superstitious sort of is, yeah. is like a bopping kind of like, Oh, I really love this song. Um, and when the dog goes down the hall, that song is playing. And then he goes in, I mean, it just, it, it's just one of those most brilliant moments for me in a horror movie of, of all time or a movie for me. or any movie. Yeah. But that, it, that it happens that he's just doing it with a shadow uh, oh man, it just drives me nuts. I love that. So, much. so
3: I'm I'm super late to this party. I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I hope our listeners have. But uh, there is a demo reel. Uh, so they they did the uh, it's not a reboot. It's they did the thing prequel and what 2011 Ew. whatever. Uh, we saw it. It was terrible. Um, and there was a lot of CG in it. Uh, before the CG, they had hired an effects studio to do practical effects. Do you guys know about this? Uh, no. What? there's a demo reel of the practical effects that were supposed to go into the thing remake um or a prequel uh and it wouldn't have saved i mean the script is crap you know there's so many problems yeah. with that 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 movie but uh these practical effects look awesome the studio they hired you know all of their work got basically drawn over with cg and cut out of the film um but so they did all this great work so they put online it's like an eight-minute demo reel of each of the effects that they put together um, with these amazing sculptures and these various forms of being turned and split and uh, the way they were morphing, the way that a human actor would, would move around inside of a suit or something. Uh, but yeah, look up. There's a, I wish I could remember the name of the studio because they deserve recognition.
1: Uh, Why would they fuck that shit up? You know,
3: I, who knows? Uh, it couldn't – because they had this – it just made me realize – it made me hate the movie
2: even more. Yeah, it made okay. me
3: realize that someone drew over all of this amazing practical effects work with CG. Yeah.
2: The one we had to see for the podcast, that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That
3: yeah. thing? Yeah.
1: Winstead. Mm.
3: Yeah, but just really cool practical stuff that would have made Rob Boutin proud. Uh,
1: Is Rob Boutine still alive? Yeah, I
3: think so. Why
1: Is, didn't they use him for the fucking prequel? It's a good question. You would think
3: that that would be a uh, selling point. Yeah, idiots. Anyway, sorry. All right, so uh, let's do some uh, reader submissions. us uh, lots of people love shadows and movies. What what have the readers sent in to
2: us? All right. So our first one is from a reader named Simon Dasmacht. Um, best use of a shadow to hide something: Orson Welles' face in *The Third Man*. The end of the film chase sequence also has great shadows. So, yeah, that third man sequence is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, best reveal using a shadow, the witch sleeping behind the curtain in Suspiria, a mm-hmm. film about ballet dancing witches. And then best use of shadows to save money. Enter uh, sequence to the 1978 Lord of the Rings. Yes, it is animated, Tom but the shadows in the opening sequence are not. They do sort of look a bit cheap, though. Interestingly, the newer Lord of the Rings pictures use shadow quite a bit. Much of Gollum's introduction, the first film is done with shadow.
1: Hmm. Wait, the shadows at the beginning of the 78 one are of Nazgul?
2: I don't know. I guess... N- I'm
1: not sure what he means.
2: I'm not sure either.
1: I hope you will... Uh,
2: uh, elaborate further Simon that, I look forward to hearing other people's picks. I'm sure there must be better shadows in film or scene. I just can't seem to think of them. Alright. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Simon. Next we have Paul Weimer. Hi guys, I haven't done grandpa movies in a while, so Uh oh. Strange number three trip. in Nosferatu. Oh, that's yeah, talk about iconic, yeah. The Trakees. title character's first trip to attack his young victim is shown entirely by seeing his shadow, rather than him, creeping toward the bedroom where his prey sleeps. Number two of Paul Wemer, in Casablanca. In the sequence where we see Elsa and Rick in Paris, we see the sign from the nearby café shadowed on the floor of their apartment. It reads, Le Belle Aurore, The Beautiful Dawn. A tag back to their conversation in the present about their Paris days. And Paul's number one in The Third Man. The first time we see Orson Welles' Harry Lime Lime, is as a menacing shadow in a doorway. The whole movie is a masterclass in the use of light and shadows.
1: Now, is this a silhouette or a shadow? Uh, well, I think this is a shadow. Oh. Okay. Is it a lime or a lime?
2: It's uh, it's a quick line. Uh, T.J. Keller. T.J. here with another one-by-one. One. Here's a quote. Shake my hand. Come on, boys. Won't you shake a poor sinner's hand? From 2009, uh, The Princess and the Frog. Oh. I
1: thought it was going to be Facing the crowd.
2: <laughs> this, this Disney movie is packed with shadows that act independently of their owner. My personal favorite are the friends from the other side that are just disembodied shadows. They look like an assortment of monsters that can affect physical objects by interacting with the shadow. They hunt down and capture the frog, as well as dragging the witch doctor back to the other side when he fails. Also, when Tom says this isn't a movie, just say, Yes, it is. Good point, right? Wow. Okay, I got shut down. (laughs) keep up the great work your friend DJ thanks DJ I
1: wonder if that'll work
2: Uh, (laughs) Arthur, Joe, and Jelly number three Ex Machina I'll avoid any plot details but towards the end there's a long shot of several people's shadows while they walk around some sort of an intersection oh the imagery is really something
1: Mm. hmm hmm I can't remember
2: what? Seriously? Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's that's great. It's like she's an individual and there's... Uh, Arthur's number two, 300. The arrows of Xerxes' armies blot out the sun. We'll fight in the shadows, yeah. Forcing the Spartans to fight in the shade. Very good. Shade is really just an area covered in shadow. And seeing the sun disappear behind a swarm of arrows looks really cool. And Arthur's number one, Dragonheart. The shadow, the shadow of the dragon, known as the Scarred One, passes the head of Pete Postlewaite before... Is that how you say it? Pete Postlewaite? Okay. Um, before it say is, it like it's spelled. Postlewaite. Wait. Oh, yeah, Postlewaite. Yeah. Right. Uh, before it is slain by Dennis Quaid, you never actually see this dragon, only its shadow. Perhaps they didn't want to design a second dragon, but either way, the dragon shadow is still pretty neat as shadows go...
3: Hey man, I'm thinking of uh, what's the Disney thing with Peter McNichol? Um, not is, not Disney. Um, Ghostbusters?
2: Dragon Slayer. Is Dragon? Yeah. That's what
1: I'm thinking of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's Dragonheart? What's Lionheart? That's what I would get confused by. And what's uh, the Jeremy Irons one? Lionheart is, is the guy Heart? who
2: pushes the gay cousin out in Braveheart. Sorry. That's the prisoner. Maybe you are. Alright, Chris Hornbostel. Uh, hello quarter three movie podcast. Love this topic so much. I love shadows and movies and love that it gives us a chance to talk about grandpa movies around Tom. Ah, so many to choose from, but number three. Um, Tom, how would you say this word? I'm just asking you as Jengas. Right. V-A-M-P-Y-R. Vampire. Alright. Vampire. That's right. Shadow of the Guard scene, and I didn't know if it was it would be vampire or vampire. I
3: don't think so. I, I mean, that maybe way. is it really? Are you supposed to say it differently? I just thought. Oh, it no, was I funny.
2: think you're right. I didn't. Okay. I honestly didn't know how to say it.
3: You could just go all out and call it like vampir. Like you could do that whole thing.
2: Oh, I like that. I like vampir.
3: I like that a lot.
2: Yeah, we like, used to t-
3: we used to tag them in T thirty five spec and Beggars Canyon all the time. Oh God, <gasps> are they... hum
2: are they two meters or less?
3: <laughs> yeah, yes.
2: five In here, the 1932 surrealist vampire movie by Carl Theodore Dreyer, shadows abound. But my favorite is the famous scene where newly arrived Alan Gray explores the haunted French town at night and sees the disembodied shadow of a peg-legged guard walking the rounds, even as the guard himself is actually shown sleeping on a nearby bench. What? It's a tremendous establishing shot that provides a wonderfully weird sense of dread in both the film's protagonist and the audience. Hmm. Uh, Chris Hornbustle's number two, Nosferatu. The womp here ascends the stairs and attacks Ellen. Kudos to director F.W. Murnau, who knew that his vampire hair looked frightening, but also was kind of short, skinny actor. Murnau shoots his shadow in this climactic and famous scene as he ascends the stair and is able to make Nosferatu.
1: They move like lightning.
2: (laughs) And finally, Chris's number one, the third man, Harry Lime, appears and runs away. Uh, This movie is the all-time champion of shadows in film. You could do a 3x3 that is strictly Best Shadows and Third Man. The best and most famous is the scene where... Deep into the film, Harry Lyme finally appears. He's stalking his mark, Holly Martins, but we see only his legs hiding in the doorway. Then a woman Slow opens away. the window, and the shadow hiding him vanishes, and we finally see Orson Welles.
3: Ah, right. That I do remember, because it's not, yeah, right, it's, it's not like a silhouette.
2: It's just he's in a shadow, so you can't see him. Yeah. Right. It's, it's that like great Hell Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, thanks for doing the podcast. That makes my Monday and Tuesday commutes. That's a thousand times more enjoyable, Chris or um, next we have Brian Kent. Snow White During the Hi Ho song <laughs> the seven dwarfs are marching their way home. There's a particular shot when the dwarves start off screen and you see their shadows slowly climb up a cliff face as they turn a corner, come into view and march toward the screen. There's a subtle zoom and tracking camera motion against the static background that makes it come alive on the screen. The characters and background are so well-integrated and made that much more real because of it.
3: Oh, uh, it's an interesting choice, but that's a cartoon. It's not a movie. Uh,
2: all right. I think you've been dealt with already. Yes, it is. Ah, Very good, Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand uh, uses his new weapon. Yeah. Well done, Kelly. Uh, Brian. Okay, this is the one that I was nervous about because of silhouettes. All right. Brian Kent's number two. Cloverfield. Uh, the kids get taken by the military into makeshift hospital HQ. No, this is a shadow, because it's thrown on the curtain. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough.
3: If it was just backlit and you just see her
2: uh, backlit, that would be a silhouette. But no, this is a shadow, isn't it? No, I, I agree with you, but I was very sensitive to that as I looked at different ones, and you could see people silhouetted. But I thought about this one, but I didn't look at it. So, I, I'll allow it. Uh... The boyfriend really ridiculously pleads with the general uh, to let him save his girlfriend, but the snarky girl pipes up with, I don't feel so good. They rush her behind a curtain so that we can see her silhouette explode into a bloody mess. I really <laughs> like that we only get to see her shadow in that moment, which gives it more impact, but I oh, really wonder if it was yeah. strictly budgetary concern not an actual artistic choice.
3: Oh, I think when you, it's Lizzie Kaplan, too, I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Thing is when you are reading it, and you said it, The General. I thought, oh, he's talking about something that happens in The General all the way up till The exploded. well Well, uh, Brian
2: capitalizes these characters so that The Boyfriend is The Boyfriend, capitalized. The General is The General, capitalized. Snarky Girl, capitalized. It's like student film. Right. Uh, and finally, Brian, C- C- Brian Kent's final one is One Crazy Summer. This is the That's dumbest thing. Uh, in Savage Steve Holland's One Crazy Summer, Bill Murray's brother gets buried up to his neck in the sand and then asks Bobcat Goldpoint for some shade. Bob places a beach chair over his exposed head and runs off. After nearly being accosted by several horrifying beachgoers, including a diaper-clad sand-eating toddler. Bill's bro believes he is safe. Then an enormous fat guy with two loud headphones on sits in the chair and proceeds to eat a 32-ounce can of chili. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm doing an IMDb up. This <laughs> At least he doesn't get a sunburn, I guess. Who brings a can of
1: chili to the beach? He gets a burn, though. <laughs> I don't understand why Cusack disavows these movies. That sounds kind of funny <laughs> to me. <Isn't> dumb?
2: <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I like the way you read it. Next we have that. Josh. All mine come from the Coppola Dracula, a movie <laughs> drunk on shadows. Uh, number three, the scene where the white wolf is running around that cinema in London just as Dracula is about to vamp Mina. You see the backlit shadow of the wolf passed against the right, white screen. God, I don't remember a thing about that movie. I
1: remember the wolf even, barely.
2: Uh, Josh is number two. In the introduction, Dracula's origin story is told in a shadow play using paper dolls. Oh,
0: I
3: like yeah, that. that. Mm. That's, that's a good
2: one. I like that. It's mm. brilliant creepy, and creepy in the medium switch for the purpose of backstory, like similar ones in Kill Bill and Harry Potter. All right, good. Um, and Josh is number one. In the scene where Harker first meets Dracula in his old Romanian Count Drag, you see Dracula's shadow doing its own thing in the background,
1: Sassily vamping at Harker. That was one of my runner-ups, actually.
2: I kind of like
3: that. So the is doing something different in the person? Yeah. Right? It's
1: the first time we saw that, I think. Mm. In a movie? A horror movie? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we Vampire? or Doesn't cast a reflection, and its shadow is unruly. It has light issues.
3: i mm, I'm pretty sure they're There've been things like where you, you see a shadow cast by somebody, and the shadow starts doing something that the person isn't
2: doing. Peter Pan.
3: Ah, very good, Kelly. Wand. Yeah. Boom. Nobody picked that.
2: All right, Josh. Josh is our last one. Do you guys have any, any? Runner, runners up? Uh,
3: there. I I feel like this is also another common shot, but I just remember it from this movie. Uh, the approaching mob, uh, represented by shadows. Rather than the actual mob itself, uh, and I'm thinking of the scene in the tunnel in 28 Days Later when they when oh. they can't get the car started, uh, and the infected are running towards them, uh, and you just see those like super exaggerated shadows cast on the side of the tunnel of people running towards them. Mm. But I feel like that's probably in like you know The Warriors, for instance, uh, right, 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 and right. probably even M, that thing where uh, that Fritz Lang movie. Uh, it seems like a common Troubles. way to do a mob. Hmm. isn't M Fritz Lang or Peter Laurie is a child murderer yeah you're right oh, yeah, oh. yeah um Kelly Wand I feel like you would know the movie Killer Clowns from Outer Space with clowns yeah it's good spelled with a K. no it's not that yeah. good but there is a scene in that where uh one of the clowns is doing a shadow uh, there's a little a shadow play with his hands and he's doing what do you call that when you do hand shadows whatever uh, hand shadows uh, exactly that's what you call it thank you I never would have thought of that uh, yeah, Roth told me that. And he's doing that for people at a bus stop, um, and he's you know the shadows become increasingly outrageous because you see what his hand is doing. The shadow's doing something different, and the shadow he eventually does a shadow of a, a big old T Rex with like red eyes, and then it eats all the people
1: at the bus stop, and they disappear. Isn't there a Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid Steve Martin joke where he's making shadow animals and they keep getting probably The Statue oh, of Liberty?
2: Yeah, work? like what? Like a shadow shoots somebody. No. All right. So I thought there was a gag in in Dead Men where, uh, where or one shadow. Right. Was, yeah.
3: Never been. Well, isn't the poster like he's doing one thing and then his shadow is doing something else? Isn't that the poster for Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. All right. But you then guys... you then you pull back and then it's he actually is holding the Statue of Liberty, and it's not his hands. I think that's the. That's twist. the joke. Oh, okay.
3: Huh. I love the camera shadow in Steven Spielberg's uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind where the camera pushes in on Barry and there's a big old fat camera shadow and Steven Spielberg kept the shot in. Nice yeah. nice work, Steven.
1: Well, I saw that as the alien's camera. <sighs> no, the aliens did not have
3: a camera, Kelly wanted.
1: What? They're all cameras. That's what those lights are for. They're flash bulbs. Ah, okay. That explains it. Taking a picture of, his, of Barry's door.
3: Do you guys catch that? Like, do you see camera shadow? Because that always drives me crazy whenever I see that. Does that bother you guys, uh, camera shadow?
1: I never uh, see them, actually. Lens,
2: lens flare drives me crazy more
3: than that. Well, lens flare is usually intentional, or at least it's it's used stylistically. But a shadow, a camera shadow is always an accident. Yeah. It should never be in there. Like, you, you you're, you're grip it or whoever does the lighting. Someone screws up if there's ever a camera shadow. And I – that that, because it's, it's usually, like, with movement or the way it's – I mean, I, yeah – it drives me crazy. I prefer Liz Fair. Well, that's
2: why lens flare drives me crazy more, because it's on purpose, and I don't understand why you're making me realize, oh, there's a lens here. Why? I don't understand lens flare. Well, so,
1: right. It's a choice. It's not a mistake, though. Lens yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, I like Dingus's little cone just now. A lens flare means a lens is there. <laughs> see what you've done, Dingus? I see. Yes, it is.
3: Uh, All right, no other runners-up for Shadows? Oh, no. All right, well, everyone, why don't you then tell us what is next week's 3x3 and how can the listeners participate?
1: Okay, the next week's thing will also be a topic that, in this case, is the following. You will submit or come up with three things, the three best... um, I made a little help articulating this. Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, God. The (laughs) three... The three best moments in a movie when a character adopts a new name or his name. (laughs) I'll give you a a for instance. I'll burn an ace, if you will. Like in Man with the Iron Fists, uh, like his girlfriend will go, hey, Gary, did you get the um, cold cuts? And he goes, I'm not Gary anymore. And then he raises his arms and goes, I'm the man with the iron fists. Wait, it was bronze. Was it gold? So no. he screwed up then, if he. Like, so. Yeah. So he says the wrong name. So that's not necessarily what the, I want for the topic. But if he says it incorrectly, I'm
3: okay with it. You've done far worse. I'm okay with this. I can I can work with it. Sure.
1: But would you? I would. I was thinking just like three best naming moments, character naming announcements. But it
2: has to be the character doing it too. Yeah,
3: you're like wanting when a character changes his name. You want <laughs> yeah. himself.
1: Yeah. Or herself. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: Yeah, dang, there's no no reason
1: to <laughs> But if Benji goes no, from now on I'm known as Benji the Hunted, then everyone goes, alright. Well Benji can talk. I didn't know that. Man, awesome. Yeah. Well, he didn't have anything to say, Tom. That's true. Or he got hunted. A lot say. Stop. He
2: didn't talk. I mean, think about the things Benji would have said. Think about the things he's seen.
1: Kelly Wan, what's the best Benji no, first, movie? Uh, the first one. One with Mitch. Just straight up Benji? Mitch. Okay. Yeah. You gotta get your Benji your vanilla Benji is the best. Alright. What kind of dog is the other benji? Ones it made me... one? What kind of dog is that? I, prefer... I prefer chocolate benji. <laughs> he was a mutt terrier.
3: A so... Mutt Terrier, alright. How many dogs well, did they actually have that played
1: Benji? Thirty eight.
3: Thirty eight. It took thirty eight dogs to do that. Wow.
1: Wow. None of them named Benji, even though most of them They were all named Herbie, which is weird. <laughs> Isn't it Herbie time – shouldn't there be a Benji reboot with
3: a CG dog? I feel like that that should happen.
1: After the live-action underdog, they're scared of dog movies, I think.
3: Well, it's time to give it another shot. Let's try it. Let's get on that,
1: people. Let's have another, They have nine lives.
3: I think we need another cat from outer space, too.
1: Oh, uh, that darn cat from outer space.
3: I like that, Kelly Wand. I like your mashup. See? Uh, all- Kelly Wand, if the listeners – have an idea of what you're talking about for this three by three, and are like, Oh, oh I've kind of an idea. How can they
1: participate? I got one last thing. Oh yes, yes, can I unidentified flying hairball. Hmm. Send your submissions to the number three, the letter X, and then the number three again at the word quarter to three spelled out phonetically with a U and then a period, and then the letters C-O-M spelled phonetically.
3: With a U? What what, 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 what address are you doing for people? Uh, and Kaliwan, what movie will we be seeing next week?
1: Next week, we'll be seeing the film. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it's called, isn't it?
3: Maybe we need Dingus' help for this. Dingus, what? do you know the technical name of the movie?
2: I don't even know what's happening
3: right now. Is it it Hitman 2 or is it Agent 47? Hitman Agent 47. So there's no two. That was the name of the other one. Yeah, what was the name of the first one then? Hitman. They just didn't specify which Hitman.
2: Yeah, it was just called Hitman. Timothy Oliphant has a shaved head. And now this is Hitman
3: colon Agent 47. There's no two or anything to show that it's a sequel. I don't think so. I don't even know if there's a colon, but it's Hitman Agent 47. Wasn't, wasn't Agent the Oliphant, Agent it, yeah, it was Timothy Olyphant Agent forty seven? Yeah, you guys watched it recently. Like that's who he was. That's who it was in the first movie. It's not yeah, like it was Agent forty
2: six or anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was just called
1: Hitman. All right. Kerlenko showed him in that, like I, usual.
3: I feel that they should somehow specify that this is not that same Hitman. I, I don't know.
1: This was Agent A- forty seven.
2: Not tired. your daddy's A- A- Hitman.
3: I mean, it is the same Hitman. It's the same guy, but it's not the same
1: movie. I mean, I, I right. No, it is the well, same movie. How are they going to
2: delineate between the the, uh, the transporter movies?
1: Well,
3: with numbers, transporter, transporter two, transporter three. Yeah. Uh, There's another one of those coming, right? Don't we don't we have a new transporter coming down the pike? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh. I think it's Chris Pine. Mm. Mm, yeah, right.
3: Chris Pine is busy saving Casey Affleck from an ocean liner.
1: Mm-hmm. That's our next. Oh,
3: one. unsinkable. Yeah, something like that. Oh, I like the name of that. Yeah, I do. Molly Brown. I'd oh, rather brother. Unsinkable
2: be another uh, Star Trek movie though. Star Trek Unsinkable. God, that's, does, do
3: we know the title of the new Star
2: Trek movie? By the way. They're making
3: another
1: one. Yeah, it was like a, I thought the story was complete.
3: No, the <laughs> last one fell apart and got put together again, and Simon Pegg is writing it, and it's falling apart, and it's back
1: to oh really,
2: and then he's writing it. Scotty is.
3: Everyone, how could you not know this? I don't care. That's ah, I like. I see, very good. Oof.
2: Yeah, zero. <laughs> I'm the only Star Trek apologist on this podcast. On this
3: I like what's the older next one movies. called? Star Trek, blah blah blah. Like, what's our uh, what, what what words do we have for the title? Do you know?
2: Age, age of his, Age of Extinction.
3: Is that true? Oh no. Tell, no, that's what I get for asking you. See, he that. One, that's he's all serious when it comes to Woody Allen movies, but Star Trek, nope. He's just gonna
2: Woody Allen Age of Extinction. Woody Allen is actually directing the next
1: Star Trek. Peg and Alan together again from the franchise. <laughs> we that we have to die. slingshot around the sun. I kind of would like if people like Woody Allen or Quentin Tarantino made a science fiction movie.
3: They should is, give Woody Allen one of those or Scorsese. Movies. I mean, they're they're handing him out like candy. Give him a chance. Yeah,
1: he serious. likes candy if it's Korean. Oh, Jesus, really? Too soon? Sorry.
3: Wow. All right, so, uh, see 47 join us for our 3x3 three three of characters changing their names. How's that going? Does that work?
2: No. No. Characters going to the DMV.
3: It absolutely works.
2: All He's right. Doing control.
3: We'll find out next week, I guess. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I've been joined by Christian Merkalonski.
2: It's Christian Muroski.
3: And we also had, uh, Kelly Wand, our cap car. <laughs>
2: Uh, I don't want to watch this movie so much again
1: Every time I hear I this do, song,
2: I want to watch this movie again I just so want to watch this movie the movie so much
1: Uh, it's fine I don't understand Tom's issues with it, he doesn't like, it. Like he, doesn't he doesn't like it. like adults
2: It's Rob Leather
3: Reiner, I mean, it's It's do it's, 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 like sentimental, Reiner. like
1: It's super yeah, sad First off, I got two Rob Reiners for you Spinal Tap and fucking Princess And, when, and I,
3: I got one. one for you when he met Sally
1: Okay, what's your next one? Go ahead did I already say Spinal Tap? North. Yeah, North. Nice. And also, uh, best president. Best American president. Okay, Lord. Lord. Uh, all, all the future men. What's the Tom Cruise one? <laughs> all the future men. <laughs> you, can't you can't stop handle the, the truth. Handle the men. You can't handle the truth. All the free men. Oh, I can't remember anything? because it's 6 in the fucking morning. In Belgium. Ugh. Oh. It's the sky! It's supposed to be slow. Can you chipmunk set a little? I mean, it's pretty, though. Well, Dingus, we took the cop car from Tom and his stupid cocaine. Now what?
2: I've got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) No, but Dingus, do a line from the movie.